You guys see this picture right here? I used to be happy. That was a long time ago. Now, I'm not happy. You want to know why I'm not happy? Because I just tuned into this vlogcast where Berkey's talking about... It's all rooted in the same thing that drove my dreams to begin with as a kid. And that's just sheer and utter discipline for the, for the, for the final end goal. Which is? I, I mean, in this instance, it's altruism in some capacity. Right? Bro. The fuck is altruism? There are already models like this out there. Like Maslow's hierarchy is a prime example of it. I can't. I just can't take it anymore. They're talking about Maslow's hierarchy. What the fuck is Maslow's hierarchy, bro? Like, like what the fuck, man? Like, this was supposed to be our thing. Like, this was supposed to be funny. This was supposed to be like hype. Do you like my flag? Hey, man. You ever been to DR? No. I'm going to take you to DR. Mm. You like women? <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you take my flag down, dog? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the Solve for Why vlogcast. This is episode number 12 and the third episode in a row with my main man, Nick Howard. It's getting old. Yeah, this might be your last run. I think, uh, I think we're going to have our Dominican friend back in the booth next week and then maybe alternate uh, for weeks thereafter. We we'll need see. Jen back. We really do. And he inserts a little, little bit of personality into this thing. Tell me what you got here before we share it. This is, uh, this is a little pre-workout. To get you talking, you know, it's vacation week. We're here, just chilling. Paradise theme. Oh, oh man. That's nice. What flavor is that? That's, uh, that's sour watermelon. It's meant Ooh. to mimic a warhead flavor. Uh, how much caffeine is in this? About 250 milligrams. Let's go. Yeah, we're going to do it. Shout out to Ghost Pre-Energy, or Pre-Workout. Oh, man, I'm going to be talking in tongues by the time this is all said and done. I might have a panic attack, so. <laughs> One can only hope. All right, so uh, this week we are wrapping up our contest for the giveaway. Um, you have until Sunday for your final submissions. We're still giving away one MTT seat, one cash game academy seat that will be taking place between September 1st and September 7th, I believe. Um, and in other news... Per your inspiration, I'm doing a webinar next week for Software YTV. Uh, we do monthly, um, I guess we're renaming them from webinars to uh, Mind. What the hell are we calling them? What are we calling them again? Masterminds. Masterminds. That's what we're calling them. Uh, we're going to be doing monthly masterminds. And, uh, you know, per our talk, I decided to do mine on Grit. Nice. And uh, the tactical approach that we can take to developing grit. So I think um, it's going to be interesting to say the least. I've been, I've been working on it this week, kind of getting it all wrapped up. Uh, I think I'm going to include like a little worksheet for people to kind of test their levels of grit. Grit assessment test? Yeah. Yeah, we're just going to run them through the ringer. Have them show up in nothing but underwear and muddy fields and tires to flip and see who comes out at the end. Fair enough. 
Um, so yeah, if any of you guys are interested in attending the mastermind, um, just check out solve for YTV. There is a free trial. You'll be able to watch it for free. If you sign up anytime between now and next Thursday, we're doing it live at 5 PM Pacific. What do you got for me today, Matt? All right. What do I got for you? What do I have for you? Um, very little. This is our vacation podcast. Uh, but what I've come to notice is that nobody knows anything about Nick Howard. Uh, I was talking to Hunt about this this morning. And That's not true. I open up to you guys somewhat. You do, but in a very like discreet kind of way where it's not necessarily memorable. Like we were, we were shooting the shit on the way to the gym, and he's like, I have no idea where Nick went to school or if he went to school. I go, you know what? Me either. Do you want the full backstory or um, the abbreviated? Well, I want, I want the abbreviated one. You can choose to include your ex-wife or not, if you like, because that was a story I was reminded of today. That I was like, oh, my God, I completely forgot about that. That was an interesting chapter. Um, well, let's just do a two-minute summary, I guess. I grew up in upstate New York, Syracuse. Uh, I was into baseball for a while in my youth. Also got into chess. Really enjoyed chess as my first real competitive venture. Um, baseball, I think, was really cool in the sense that I loved the team dynamic of it, but chess was the first thing that really got me competitive. Sure. Um, a lot of parallels to poker. Probably was the origin of a lot of my uh, competitive tendencies crystallizing. Um, I think a lot of my competitive personality developed in those years. Took that about as far as I could run with it. Um, watched rounders. And the Chris Moneymaker thing happened in, I don't know, 2003, 2004. Yep. Realized that poker was probably a cooler venture than chess because I was in high school and, like, dealing with the whole social pressure around chess type thing. So I pulled that transition. Um, ended up trying college for a semester, but basically just lived that dorm life style where I found myself skipping school to just play poker. Um, Managed to get good enough where I had a little grip on money, dropped out after first semester, traveled the world a little bit, ended up in Vegas around 21, um, pulled off the live grind back when Venetian still had that 1020 exclusive That was when lounge. we first, first uh, played together. I really liked that room. And yeah, you did sit down uh, one night when you still had hair, I remember. Yeah. And I looked across at you, and I, I remember thinking, you showed up with Lamana, I think. There was a huge fish in the game. Yeah, 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 I put um, him in the game. We mashed. He made, like, a lot that he night. He made, like, 15,000. I was convinced I made, like, he was, like, a high-stakes rounder that night. <laughs> um, I have a great Lamana story to follow up this with. He, the ga that game broke, and we ended up playing heads up for a while. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Not knowing who you were, and then I had to take off. But then I didn't see you again until two years later when we finally – met back up um but long story short i dabbled in the venetian whole thing for a while um and then i met this girl out there when i was 21 who was from canada and long story short we dated for a while and she was coming back and forth and then was no longer able to come into the country because she like sort of uh, extended her visa too yeah, far yeah so in typical um spontaneous 21 year old fashion i decided that it, it was a rational move to marry her and I proceeded to move to uh, Canada and actually had like a really nice three-year marriage until that sort of ran its course. Ended up single again, moved back to Vegas, got involved in the whole playing coaching path, got that job for a run at once, took that as far as it would go, stayed in Vegas most of that whole time, um, and then eventually started my own site, met you, 
So that's it. You're just gonna breeze right through this. This but that was uh, a decade. I, that was a decade. No, no, but you're just gonna like like gloss right over this whole. I got married by the fly by the seat of my pants. Yeah, yeah, and, and in fact, I have to because that's what it felt like at the time. If like, you ask were, any was of my your friends, family invited your friends. Did you guys have a wedding? Like, how did this go down? Yeah. Okay. So that's the interesting part. Um, when I decided I was gonna do it, I told my friends who I was living with at the time, and I was like, guys, like, th- I, I made some sort of argument that this made sense. Okay. And I was like, so I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go fly to Toronto and marry her and then basically come back with her. (laughs) In my head, that made sense. Sure. Um, So I did. I flew there. I basically met her father for the first time. And I was like, look, this makes sense to me. Do I have (laughs) basically like did the whole do I have your approval type thing? Um, Married her at City Hall. Had like one party night there. And then, uh, yeah, came back to Vegas and eventually ended up moving to Vancouver with her. Which is probably the best thing about the whole, the whole shabam was being able to live uh, in British Columbia for three years on sort of a visitor's visa. Beautiful place, even though it's only really nice two or three months out of the year. Um, were you grinding online a lot or were you being a husband? So, so that was really the, the lucky part about it too, was that in the midst of this whole thing, um, I managed to evade the entire Black Friday because I was living in Canada at the time. Right. So where everybody else basically got shut down, I was untouched by it because I was currently in Vancouver outside of the whole thing. And realistically, it saved my poker career, probably, because I don't know that I would have been able to weather the storm of Black Friday had I not been uh, in Canada, sort of. Yeah, it's a steep transition into live, especially like, I mean, maybe not so much at that time, but... At any time, really, I feel like it's a steep transition because there's a certain level of arrogance that comes with beating in the online realm. Like, you know, let's call a spade a spade. If you're winning in most online environments, you are way more mechanically sound and talented than the live counterparts. But I don't think the two environments necessarily uh, kind of like swap out evenly. Um, Online players are going to have more success live than live players would have online, of course, because it requires a more tactical approach to play online. But the big pitfall for online guys live is that they don't recognize the available win rate increase through things that they deem to be quote unquote bad. Yeah. And I think that's probably the best uh, advantage or insight that you've been able to show me is that we talked about that concept of resilience last time, the ability to sustain a exploitative strategy over time. Mm-hmm. And I think you're someone who uh, is very balanced in your perspective of how exploitative you should actually be playing in any given one live session. Um, and even in your case, like I think in a lot of in a lot of senses, you might actually play with the same people more than a lot of other live regs yeah when you get to a certain stake level it's it's difficult to kind of cherry pick your pool any longer but i do think that your consistency with exploiting the worst players at the table is probably your biggest strength i think that i was thinking about this the other day and i wanted to mention it that like maybe the biggest skill that you can develop in terms of mindset is really getting to the bottom of being honest about how little the game changes in any next session. Like I would doubt that your approach versus the bad players at the table shifts all that much from session to session. Like do you pretty much go in with the same game? Yeah. I don't even know that it's shifted much for 10 years. Like the way that I always speak this to students is I don't concern myself with the worst players in the game because I'm just naturally going to 
win that EV by being good. Mm. And by inserting myself in more difficult situations than my counterparts, now I get to vie for that EV at a higher frequency. And I think it's the main thing that weaker minded players need to seem, they seem to need to be constantly reminded of this, that it's really vulnerable to allow your, your match plan to just go through all these variations over the course of a session or two or three. Like the amount of times I've heard somebody come to me and say that they just revamped their whole strategy over three sessions right. and how those sessions panned out. Mm. Um, I think that's an indication that you're not managing system uh, environmental feedback. Well, I think correctly. it's a struggle because like there's this weird balance, right? So in a general sense, you shouldn't overreact to the environment. You should just take it for what it is understand that in short term uh some weird shit can happen and that doesn't necessarily mean anything but at the same time you can make logical leaps based on personality types and things like that so it becomes a little problematic when say you have a tough player to your left and they're just pounding you with three bets you're just facing a barrage of three bets well now it becomes really critical for you to recognize like is this the type of person who's actually challenging me because they view me as weak or they view me as a spot or they think that they can derive EV that way? Or is this the type of person who's just simply a strong player and is being dealt a certain distribution, distribution. right now? Yeah. yeah. And I have to say, um, in my experience, I lost a lot of money trying to convince myself that he was beating me over the head intentionally. Most, most people, I think, go down that path. It's, it's kind of like, it's, it's honestly the most beautiful uh, attraction to the idea of strictly studying solves. It's because like now you don't ever have you to never think get about caught up things. into that rabbit yeah. hole. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy to get diluted by that when it's going on because you really want there to be a story that you can attach to it to make sense of it. I noticed that like it's more comfortable to tell the story that he's bashing you over the head than to accept the fact that he's actually just getting dealt better cards. And I'm not quite Depending sure. Depending on your personality type. If, if you're competitive, that's more comfortable. If you're, so tell me the other So if side you're uncertain of, of yourself, it becomes a lot easier to convince yourself that he's just running well. The sob story. Yeah, of, you could just like, keep waiting. Me. Yeah. And this is... Uh, These are the people that will like, just find a, a fold with ace-queen because it's still so uncomfortable. Right. And it's something I've been trying to uh, map a little bit better with, with Matt Hunt now that we're sort of back in the mix of one more round of uh, trying to break down performance cycles and the, and the mindsets and the mindset imbalances that develop. And I don't know if he's told you much about what we're working on, but just the brief cliffs, we, we basically want to, uh, for the first time, include the dimension of your personality type when incorporating that into the tilt model. Mm -hmm. So like basically everybody's at one point or another in the throes of like this performance tilt cycle. And depending on your inclination, that will determine whether or not you default passive or right. whether or not you default towards fight or flight at yeah, any given time. Sure. And it can change too. But we did this the first time around and I thought it was the part that we missed. I thought maybe we didn't map that as well as we could have. Um, and what, I think it's a big piece of the puzzle. Cause what, not, what metrics are you using to measure? Is it the Myers-Briggs? Um, well, most of what we, the performance cycle map that we created hinges a lot on 
whether or not you're someone who is struggling through taking too much ownership or not taking enough ownership. Okay, that's way better. Because what I was gonna say is like, it's actually quite widely debunked that Myers-Briggs. So, so you're asking for the personality type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that we should bother to really uh, try to classify it rigidly. I think largely what happens is there's a series of environmental feedback that you get that can swing you either way. Yeah. Like, I don't think anybody's just one thing. I think, no, I think that was the fair. that was the oversight that we made the first time around. Yeah. Is like, I'm I know myself. I default mostly towards fighting back mm -hmm. when I feel like I'm losing control over a match. Yep. But if I get beaten up enough, if my bluffs don't work enough, suddenly I'm risk averse. Man, I I, I wish I was more prepared for this. Like, obviously this came up organically. Mm. But for the last like eight months, uh, myself and a former student, or I guess a current student, uh, Kevin Kanzler, he's he's also a teacher, and we've been working on modeling these archetypes. And effectively, it's it's the same thing, right? And their impact on environments. So you told me about this at one point, uh, and I didn't know how much progress you made with it. I'm going to share it with you because he's actually like gotten pretty far with it. But effectively, it's a similar thing. So uh, the easy way to classify it would be like if you start with like an alpha and a beta, and then those will like uh, deteriorate into other subclasses where it's like one will try to like like in the alpha class, one will try to like uh, just reign control no matter what through like intimidation tactics or whatever the case may be fear-based whatever and then the other will try to like uh be a chameleon and try to adhere himself to the environment very subtly re uh taking control and uh you know if you go the beta route obviously this is the more passive player and then you're gonna have one who like will like uh he has much better qualifiers for this than i do but um you know i'm basically just describing it one will be like shaking his fist saying like i swear to god if you three bet me again like you're gonna regret it mm. never planning on doing anything and the other one will just like continually smile and lay down and like be be the doormat and, and everything in between and all of this helps shape the actual environment that you're playing in to the point where like we can begin to qualify it uh and basically say like this is a hostile environment this is a passive environment this is uh everybody gets along kind of environment and you can actually like map how you can best insert yourself based upon the environment, based upon the, the actors that are involved. So the actual, the dynamic of the different personality types at the table is included as almost another dimension of how that table is gonna play. Right, and what we found is like the stronger the, the archetype, the more impact they have on wielding the environment to their own uh, doing. So like basically if you took a drunk person it's gonna be the strongest personality type that you're gonna have at a table. Okay. He'll wield the environment to whatever he wants it to be. If he wants everybody to gamble, it will turn into an absolute gambling environment. Right, so I wonder if that's, I think what's actually happening there is that the drunk guy with his overpowering personality type is, dic is the one who can dictate the table dynamic the best because he's the one creating such an overextension it's, it's offering some level of value, whether he frames it that way or not, right? Well, he's just the one probably putting the most money into the pot. Right, which is value. Okay. So I it's see. a value proposition. No matter what personality type you fall under, the more of a value proposition you're offering to the, to the field as a whole, the more likely they are to bend to your will. So if you're willing to give a lot of action preflop, if you're willing to straddle, if you're willing to do certain things, the rest of the table is willing to conform because they view it as a wounded animal that they're gonna take advantage of. Nice. If you can apply skill to that, now all of a sudden, most games that you're able to enter into will deviate people off of their default strategies and bend to your will. 
So just to tie this back into the the initial point that we got off this rant on when you were talking about somebody bashing you over the head with a three bet, as someone who comes from the the type of personality imbalance of wanting to fight back, mm-hmm. I never wanted to have that control taken away from me at mm-hmm. the table. And what that would result as is me making up a lot of stories that this guy was actually beating me over the head when in fact the card distribution was just going in his favor, like you said. And then my response to that would be to ramp up the aggression. So like fight back with four bets is one way to do it. And then you can, that plays out in a number of different ways. Either he fights back with five bets or he never really was bluffing you wide to begin with. So your four bets are just burning money. Right. The trouble is, is that we don't know if he's imbalanced, but it'll become very clear that you're imbalanced. And, and the problem with that is that I used to, I used to not have a, f- a framework for describing this, but now I just call it the immature form of countering mm-hmm. would be for me to fight back recklessly without actually having a good uh, piece of information to go on that he's actually exploiting me. Right. Like to make that adjustment too fast, I think is the immature counter. Agreed. Where actually, and this is interesting, if you actually had a hunch that that guy was bashing you over the head with three bets, but you don't really have confirmation of that yet, sample size or whatever, the mature way to exploit that would actually be not to blow up with four bets because that increases volatility, but actually just to tighten up your initial RFI. And when I saw that for the first time, I was like, oh, wow, like that really helps someone of my inclination because I was losing control completely by thinking that the only way to fight back was to go down the four bet road where realistically all I needed to do was fix the problem at the root or I guess exactly. solve for why, like you would usually say. Um, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's just, it felt more mature mm-hmm. as opposed to the old way, which just felt like I had to constantly be reacting to something that might not even have been occurring. Yeah. This stuff's great, by the way. It's amazing, man. Get you talking. It's the talking juice, if you will. It's a, I love that. It's a hell of a mug. So how did we even get off on that? I don't know. It's not important, but I do have some other questions. Um, yeah, we were talking about your life story and how you ended up playing online, sure. saving your career. Right, right. Uh, you know, after your wild marriage fling in Vegas. I had a fling. How did you guys not get married in Vegas? Um, you were here. Good qu- oh, it was because she was, she was basically exed out of the country. Oh, right, right, right. So yeah. she didn't even have a chance to come back here and do yeah. it that way. Um, all right, so you kind of mentioned that in childhood you, you uh, gravitated towards baseball, which makes sense. Um, it's probably the most strategic sport of the, the major American sports. Um, how, how much have you played uh, athletically, baseball or otherwise? Like, like, obviously, you didn't play at a collegiate level. You barely attended college. But like, how active were you growing up in, in sports and athletics as a whole? I would say very um, baseball was the one thing that I took to like the all-star level, okay. uh, in my teens. I think I, I moved away from baseball when I sort of endured my first performance trauma, uh, experience with coaching, mm-hmm. which I guess is probably tied into my whole, um, preference for mastering coaching at this yeah. stage in my life. But, um, I basically had like a really, really tyrannical little league coach at one point and, I mean, there's definitely situations that I actually blacked out of my mind that I totally can't remember in terms of just getting like berated in practice to the point where I remember going home in like tears. But um, that was sort of formative for me in the sense that 
I didn't understand at the time why I lost my passion for the game, but I think it was because I felt so defeated yeah. that I couldn't do anything right around yeah. this coach who I, I had for like two or three years. Um, so I got out of that and then I got involved in chess. And it's funny, I was over, I was hanging out with uh, Chewy the other night at his house playing chess. And uh, he asked me, what type of increment do you want to play? Because he has a clock. And I was like, oh, let's play either like, I was like, let's play something with more time. And I was like, remembering why I have a preference for that. And it's because I went to state champions uh, in chess and I, I lost the state championship game on time with like a very winning position. Yeah. I was up like a rook and uh, I ended up losing on time. And, and, and that to me was the same sort of uh, traumatizing competitive thing where like I, I couldn't really place it at the time, but that's why I quit chess is because I lost that game. It was like, I didn't have the coping skills necessary to um, deal with the really bad beat when I felt like I should have been able to win the game. Right, right. Uh, and I dealt with that as a kid as basically like moving on to the next thing. So then it was poker. And then this is the really interesting thing. When you asked me, why did you get into coaching? And I said, I don't think it was fully a conscious decision. It was because I was at the, the pivot point between from 1020 to moving. I had the choice to move to nosebleeds or not. And I think that was my success barrier operating that I would rather be a coach as cool as it is to create the map of how to get from small stakes to high stakes. That very much was my comfort zone at the time. Right. As opposed to doing maybe what would actually have been the more humble thing. Right. uh, And move on. And you can frame it different ways, but it's interesting. So is this something that you think you've overcome since then? Like, do you think that you still have this performance ceiling where you'll just move on to the next thing? Yes. And I'm facing it at this point. Yeah. So I I think it's something that actually reasserts itself at every level. So for instance, like if you got a call tomorrow to play a game higher than you ever played, I think you would probably go through a similar barrier where it's just like you, it's sort of, uh, Every next sizable downswing really trains you to be okay with getting crushed by that by that size downswing. Like yours, yeah. your biggest is way bigger than mine ever was. Mm. But I, I wonder, and I guess I'll ask you: Do you feel like you're clouded out in that sense? Like your biggest one was like five million. Yeah. Do you feel like that is such an astronomical, like unfathomable number, almost that like making it fifteen wouldn't really be that that much different? Well, all right, so. It's important to add some context. Of that five million, I was only losing personally ten percent. Okay. But the five hundred thousand that I was losing at the time was like half my net worth. So I, I want to focus in on that actually. In your direct experience as someone gambling with that amount of money, do you feel a lot different when it's not your money, like? And, and I mean this, like, I want you to approach this as sensitively as possible because realistically, if you lose 5 million, you lost 50 grand. No, 500. 500,000 of your yeah. own money because you had 10%. Okay. Yeah. So does that feel much different than if you just had 500K on the table of your money? Um, Do you feel like you're losing more when you're losing your backer's money? Or does it no, feel equivalent no, no. to the piece that you have invested in the pie? Uh, I, I think it feels relative to, um, my personal security. Okay. So, uh, if if I I feel worse losing backers money because I have a fiduciary responsibility to someone else. And then there's like that whole thing where you have to like explain it. Yeah. But 
um, the, I think the only reason I feel worse is because of that filter, right? So it's like when I'm losing my own money, I don't have to answer to anybody except myself and God. And I'm free to do destructive things and just like deal with the, the backlash personally, mm -hmm. right? And just know like, God, that was so stupid. Like, what am I doing? That was a product of tilt, whatever. But when it's someone else's money, you, you really hone in on not doing destructive things. And that's not saying that I'm perfect. Of course, I've made mistakes and there have been reactionary, uh, there's been reactionary money lost. There's probably also been reactionary money won, whatever. But in a general sense, I'm very heightened on my investment strategies when I'm playing with someone else's dollar. So it becomes particularly debilitating when you then have to turn around and kind of explain yourself to someone who is entrusting in you that you're, you're doing your due diligence and investing the money appropriately. And to be fair, like I, I, I've been lucky. I never had to like suffer through painstaking conversations of just like, you know, I swear I'm beating this game kind of thing. It was always understood like uh, I'm within the walls of variance. Okay. And, you know, it's clear that, that I'm winning in these games. It's just like, you know, sometimes compounding effects happen. And that, that, you know, it was reversed very quickly, right? The amount of time it took me to lose the 5 million was the better part of a year. The amount of time it took me to recover it was like four and a half months. So the faith was never really lost. It's just an internalization personally, where it's like you feel like you have to provide answers and excuses as to like how the worst case scenario presented itself. So walk me through how your performance cycle manifests when you're on a downswing. Do you feel like you're someone who becomes very risk averse or do no. you feel like you're someone who lashes out and tries to gain control back? Cause the way that hunt and I plotted it, those are sort of the two ends of the yeah, spectrum. I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, I, I think the third end of the spectrum is people who transverse that and, and like get beyond it. Uh, I would say in the past, when I was much more immature and just coming through learning the game and not really comprehending this as a big picture business, I was very much on the side of like, fuck it, I'll run it to zero or I'm going to run it to a million. Um, and it hurt. And I knew that the next lash was going to be more painful than the last, but I didn't care. Like the high score was more important to me than protecting zero. I've been. And do you think that was an imbalance? Yeah, for sure, for sure. It was very destructive, but it's also a byproduct of why I'm here, I think. Okay, I think if cool. I was risk, That's actually a cool point. Yeah, I think if I was risk averse, I would have retired 10 years ago. But you may not have made it here using the most optimal bankroll management right. model. Right, so and, a, and I think it's difficult. I think almost everybody's going to be an outlier in some capacity. It's just too competitive of a field, and there are too many things that have to line up for people to just say, like, yeah, I did it right, man. I started at penny stakes. And I grinded up until I had 100 buy-ins and I moved up and repeated the process until finally I was at 600, 1200. Unless you have really, really good guidance from the start, I think it's very unlikely that you would, that, that your story would map the optimal way. Agreed. But it's interesting. I was talking to um, Andrew Graham, who most people probably know as Oh Hey Cindy. He was one of my students um, a few years back before he had that epic nosebleeds run where he ended up playing some of the bigger games on PokerStars. And I spent some time with him over the World Series and caught up with him. And what he was saying was similar, that he thinks that his advantage was his weakness in a way, which was that he really doesn't have the same view of risk as most people. Like he just doesn't, he was one of those people who just doesn't really care about money same. and losing it. Same. And he, he was uh, pointing out that he thinks 
it's a weakness, but it happened to work for him because he never ran so bad that he got bit for it. Yeah. But he made a point to say that, like, he doesn't really know what he would do on a really bad downswing because he doesn't think he's necessarily equipped with the tools to deal with that yet. Yeah. And it's just interesting how it's a strength and a weakness to me because it keeps him from being risk averse, which is good, mm-hmm. but his bankroll management uh, philosophy might not actually be the safest. Right. And I would say that the same thing occurred with me, uh, except I did experience probably all of the worst case outcomes. And, you know, this is where the resiliency and grit comes into play. It's like you just find a way to bootstrap your way back to the top. So, and this is interesting because it kind of reminds me of what Bryn Kenny was saying too. Um, yeah, he's, in, in he's his... gone on seven-figure downswings uh, after being worth, like he, he's had a million and lost it into a million negative many times. So when do you think that pattern sort of, reaches a point where it's no longer threatening. Like, do you think, well, again, Bryn's situation, right. coming off probably the biggest score, well, definitely the biggest score of his career so far, mm-hmm. do you think there's a point at which that, I don't know if you would even call it an urgency, but like that need to put yourself outside of what would be considered proper Kelly criteria, right. like bankroll management yep. requirements, do you think that ever cools off? Or uh, will you always be the type of person who is like willing to risk potentially too big of a chunk of your bankroll to have the next biggest right. score. So for me personally, um, I don't think it's a monetary number. I don't think that it's some sort of like plateau or anything along those lines. Uh, it, it just became a byproduct of education and function. So when I understood that the path wasn't zero to a hundred million in poker, but instead the path was zero to some sort of personal wealth, where then you can kind of like blossom out and do a lot of other things that could potentially grow that wealth. I, I became a lot more conservative in my investment strategies at the macro level. So like I wouldn't put myself, and I had the opportunity to do this a lot this summer. Like, um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go play hundred percent on my own dime, 300, 600, where I'd be risking like somewhere between 10 and 25% of my net worth every time I sat down. Mm. And I just didn't, I just instead played a full schedule during the summer and said like, this is the much more reasonable route to a high ROI where my risk is relatively neg- negligent or negligible rather. Um, and I don't, I don't second guess that. It sucked being on the sideline. It sucked not playing in games that I'm accustomed to playing during the summer. And it sucked hearing about like, you know, all the seven figure swings one way or the other when you feel like you could be in the arena. For sure, it but out. it's also preventing a very, very worst case scenario, right. which is that you might have to drop down to stakes that are excruciating for someone yeah. like you to play when you're used to playing much higher. Like this is something I'm probably the biggest on. Um, and I mean, uh, for people who don't know like the type of shit that you've done, it's like you've done some ridiculous shit at times with like buying into uh, super high rollerball with probably like a third of your net worth. 25%, yeah. Okay, so like that's that's like probably the most extreme yeah. thing I can think of having known you for a few years. Yeah, that's way worse than having 25% of your roll on a cash table because like the amount of failure that you're going to exemplify in one single tournament right. is so high. So one of, these, one of the things I try to think about uh, – more than anything, when I'm mapping career outcomes, both as a coach and as a player, is this idea of how much volatility should you be taking on, uh, especially if you're not already at very high stakes. Mm -hmm. There's like two components to this. You can play a strategy that has a higher standard deviation, and it might 
have a higher win rate, BB per hundred. In a lot of cases, we know this to be true because the environments are too passive. Mm -hmm. So if you were to jack aggression up through the roof, you might be maximally exploiting the, the, the environment in a vacuum, but you're taking on a level of standard deviation where you're also increasing volatility. Sure. So you can actually plot uh, some variance simulations where even if you have a substantially higher win rate, when you map it over the dimension of increasing stakes, it matters way more that you increase stakes than any other thing, like increasing win rate or increasing volume. Stakes matter the most for the macro outlook of your bottom line. So the interesting thing about standard deviation and increasing volatility is that if you increase it to such an extent that you take on an amount of volatility that on average makes it take longer for you to scale to high stakes, then suddenly that's not the most profitable trajectory, even right. though it is the highest win rate. And that was a hard thing for me to see for a while. And when I balanced that, because I was experimenting with different uh, versions of a, of a very aggressive, very aggressive system, mm -hmm. pushing upwards of like 140, 150 standard deviation at times in these semi-anonymous environments, this stuff's really hitting me hard. I like I almost can't <laughs> even talk. <laughs> but I, um, I started to realize that okay, so there is an extra dimension here that I really need to pay attention to if I want to get to the highest bottom line. Right. Which is basically getting to a, a limit that you are comfortable playing at, meaning you won't have to drop ever again. Right. So I think it's something that has to be really factored into this whole equation is like, if you are taking on a level of volatility that is putting you at risk of having to drop to like several stakes. Sure, even, sure. That's like a huge oversight. But this is only, and, and this is the thing, this is why the high stakes realm is what it is. And, you know, people are very critical of it, saying that, you know, these guys aren't playing on their own dime. If somebody gave me millions of dollars, I'd get out there and win too, yada, yada, yada. Well, it's bullshit. And the reason is because of what you're saying, a lot of times the most profitable strategy is a very volatile one. And no limit hold'em by nature is just volatile anyway. So that path to the high stakes, when you map it out, there's a deterioration process where no matter how much of a risk averse path you try to line up, it's improbable that you'll ever attain your, uh, your goal that you set out to attain where you just have a hundred percent of yourself. But that's really what I want to start making more models to show is like, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying that you're hurting your chances of ever getting to nosebleeds. If you're going to take a more risk averse bankroll management strategy. Partially, I'm also just basically acknowledging the, the obvious truth that no matter what bankroll strategy you apply, at some point, you're going to have to be uh, a small business that gets bought up by a conglomerate, right? If, like, if you're doing it properly. Yeah, you're, you're just going to have to diversify your risk. Okay. Um, so this is the thing that I'm interested in now is like, what would be your, and I don't want specific numbers because clearly we can't figure it out, but do you think there as a, somebody who's coming in at small stakes, do you think we could actually solve for an optimal bankroll strategy if we knew what their win rate was? And I think their win rate's important because it allows us to plug it into a standard deviation calc, right. which shows us right, right. what their risk of ruin would be with said win rate. So I, I've actually, believe it or not, I had this debate a lot. Um, and it's one that it's difficult because basically the way I see it is that um, the, the major divide between online and live isn't necessarily the in-person factor. Uh, it's, it's twofold. It's time in the sense that in the live realm, time is very, very slow. 
hand volume is very, very low. And in the online realm, both of those things are pretty much uh, consistent and you're able to like really get good data. But secondarily, it's like uniformity. So the online environment, depending on which pool you're in, if you're in the low stakes pool, it's pretty uniform across the board as to what you can expect from that pool. Same in the mid stakes, same in the high. Now, they're not going to necessarily compare to one to one ratio. The mid stakes is not going to be the exact same as the low stakes nor the high. There's going to be massive differences, but you're going to get a pretty consistent environment across the pool. Live isn't that way. Any given game, any given hour, any given session, um, whatever the case may be, casino, like venue, whatever, there's going to be a really, really, really wide array of characters that you're going to come across. And the only real consistency is that that's likely to be the truth, whether you're playing 1-2 or 100-200. So you're basically saying that at any given level, the biggest whale ever could show up. Yeah. And a lot of times, I think that's true, that they show up at the, the way bigger games. Yeah. Or, or the, it, honestly, it doesn't matter. The whole point is that like uh, there are these outlier impacts that can occur, these disruptors to your environment that can alter your win rate so significantly just from one session that it's very difficult to quantify things in like hourly. Okay. I see what you mean. So and, the, the win rate is not really stable, period. Right. Which makes it difficult to actually do a variance calc like that. Yeah. The environments are so dynamic and so volatile in nature that uh, it's really difficult to have any sort of predictory. So it sounds like what we're moving toward then is like some sort of dynamic bankroll management where we allow for greater volatility when there's a huge fish in the game. Yeah. Which so I think has got to be for sure, for a sure. version of optimal. Yeah. Uh, going back to your original question of like, when do you deprogram out of the, the risk or whatever the case may be? I don't necessarily know that you ever do, but you definitely lessen your risk of ruin as you get smarter, as you get wealthier or whatever. For me, what it ultimately boils down to is one simple question. If I take this risk, is it going to alter my investment strategies moving forward? If I miss number one, and if I succeed number two. So going back to the super high roller bowl in 2016, I chose to take 25% of myself. And it was like a quarter of my bankroll at the time. My thoughts were the difference between me having, um, you know, $600,000 or $450,000. Hold on. State that again. You, didn't you put up 200K for that of your own money? No, no, no. I took a quarter of myself and it was a quarter of my net worth at the time. Okay. So I took, uh, what, 75000 Because it's 300K buying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was just like, well, how much is this 75K going to impact my, my investment strategies moving forward, right? So like, let's say for, I was worth a half a million. Is there any difference between me being worth 500K or 425K? And if the answer is no, are there other shots that I'd be better served to invest this 75K in, in the near future? When the answer comes up no for both of those, then I look at the upside. Well, if I have a huge score, if I cash this thing, or let's say I... I finish in the top three of this thing. Will my life or my investment strategies be any different when I suddenly have like a million plus? Mm. And the answer became yes. Clearly yes. Very clearly yes. So like to me, that's just like an easy outline for like how you're going to be thoughtful about uh, taking well, on higher risk. Let me push risk. back on this though, just for, okay. cause I'm not sure that I'm, I'm not right about this. I, I honestly don't know. Mm. Taking this type of approach, in the case where you end up, so, okay, say you, say you did what you did 
and then say things continue to go poorly after you brick that tournament. Mm -hmm. Have there been times where you've looked back and been like, I really wish I would have played that 75K differently. So I like, have there been times where your bankroll can continue to dwindle? Yeah, yeah. Where now, like in retrospect, you wish you would have, because I think really conservative people would use that as the the oversight. Yeah, but I, I think it has to be a fallacy. Uh, in the sense that, like, we can say that about any single singular event throughout the course of our career in a lot of ways, right? You're at a final table in the final five, you go for it, and uh, you, you know, you ultimately get sucked out on and finish fifth instead of first, whatever. And then you look back with regret and say, like, oh, my God, my life would have been so much better if I had just aimed for the top three. But it's like we, we can't look at things through 2020 uh, or, or sorry, through um, retroactive vision where all of a sudden hindsight is just perfect. Right, okay, you know? so in, in your opinion, it's already accounted for when you decide that you're gonna put up 25% of your role that the risk is acceptable. Right. And then if you were to lose 75% of your role beyond that point, you can't go and look back and be like, well, I should have known that that was gonna happen. I would have, I would examine how I lost the 75% thereafter. Okay. Because I think that's what's critical. If, if you look at that 75% and you see more justified shots, then you recognize like, Oh, it's not necessarily the model that's flawed. It's my approach to the model and my desire to gamble, right? Because once you accept that I'm going to take this shot because I don't see any other big shots in the foreseeable future, when another big shot presents itself and you just go, shit, I didn't expect that. Mm. You have to have the self-discipline to say, but I already pulled a trigger. Right. So like, I have to pass on this one. Which and is what you said you did uh, when, you had the, when you had that opportunity. Yeah, but in the past, I'd been very bad at that. And that's why I went broke off of 300,000 in 2011, 2012. I think that's probably the most interesting part. Like what we just talked about and putting a lot of attention on how to not tilt during downswings, Mm -hmm. I think are where most of my, um, seems to be where most of my passion is in terms of uh, career development. Yeah. Because I feel like, again, it goes back to what is generating the most amount of unnecessary stress on the player at any given time. I think it's his misperception of what's actually occurring when he's on a downswing. Yep. And that is occurring on both the micro and macro level. It's yeah. like the distortion that occurs to him in hand, as well as like his core beliefs about the poker gods hating him. Right. Um, and then the second part I think is really important is like, what if we really could get some really good data or I don't think it would just be data. I think there's dimensions of it that need to be introduced, like you said. And it's going to be different for everybody, depending on what your current opportunities are in your life, mm-hmm. the shots that you have access to. But I would love to see better models created that people could sort of select. Yeah. Like I, maybe if I could imagine a module that would have the biggest impact on people having healthy investment careers, it would be some sort of module where like you are asked to identify with one of four characters or archetypes and that would include these current opportunities that you have available to you. Select the one that fits you best, and then it just pumps out a bankroll management model that you can almost follow. Yeah. I think that'd be cool. Yeah, I, I think that it's really critical, though, to add the layer of, um, of accountability and independent problem solving to this. So what you just outlined, to me, uh, it, en- it encapsulates performance anxiety and why it exists, right? So whether it's conscious or subconscious, players are going through this tremendous performance anxiety due to too much risk or not a healthy uh, relationship with risk Mm -hmm. and um, too much self-imposed pressure to do something this particular session, right? Right. Too much short-term view. Um, 
when we alleviate that by just giving them a model to follow of like, hey, don't sweat the risk and don't sweat the performance because you're, you're confident in your strategy and here's your bankroll model. So just follow it, right? That's, that's fantastic. The, the only issue is that I think that it removes the responsibility of them being able to be in any way, shape or form dynamic. And the nature of poker or being a professional is just seeking out max EV opportunities. That's why I think to do it right, you would have to account for different adjustments within the model. Like, I think there's something really healthy about coming to grips with, I'm okay risking here, even though I know it's a little outside of my model and I'm not going to self-destruct because of it, regardless of it. Like I've already made peace with the outcomes. And I would hope that if somebody were to make this model correctly, I would hope that we could come up with different events that would justify taking on greater risk. I feel like we should be able to quantify that. Yeah. Like if the whale sits down yeah. in the 50 hundred game and you're only a 25, 50 player, or even a 10, 20 player, you can justifiably risk 10% of your bankroll taking a shot in that right. game because your win rate in that game is like 40 BB per hundred, right. which right. is a very rare opportunity to mm -hmm. be able to get at a higher limit. Um, so I feel like the dynamic skill that you want to, again, this goes back to, training people to be able to still think independently and rationally yeah. the dynamic skill set that you want to make sure that the player uh, contains or, or holds on to is the ability to assess the situation and be like, okay, the risk is acceptable. Right. My model says this and that I shouldn't really deviate from it, but there are exceptions and I'm going to make a judgment call that this is one of them. Yeah. So I've been kicking around this idea and, and the more we talk, the more like I may just pull the trigger. I, I want to do this uh, this 100K challenge on WSOP.com, right? Where um, not like a traditional bankroll challenge where it's like you start with a dollar and you land at this fixed number, or you start with a thousand, whatever. It's like whatever, every replenishable resources. Like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna take a, a step down and play smaller stakes, like I'm not gonna fret over uh, the Kelly criteria and risk of ruin, right? I, I don't I don't want to put a focus on that part. So what would your so you would have a starting bankroll? Um, or I, I think just... I have like 20K in my account right now or something along those lines. Okay. But it's, you know, it represents a fraction of my net worth. The, the idea would be that like, I can't go broke in these games. It's just not feasible. Okay. Right. So I have a replenishable bankroll. Let's put it that way, which I actually think probably holds true for like a lot of, uh, semi-serious players who have work, right? Like they have outside sources of income, so they have a replenishable bankroll. Right. So it's not really the getting out of zero. That's a challenge. It's, it's mapping your progression through the ranks. And like, what I want to try to do is like, uh, map this out to a hundred K, um, where, you know, effectively, like I give some set amount of time, be it 90 days, 120, it just depends on like my schedule or whatever. The reason why I'm, I'm stating this is because the pools are pretty limited, right? 510 only runs, uh, every once in a while, there's maybe like 12 to 15 people who are driving the action. Um, and in a lot of ways, like when I sit, games will go, um, you know, whatever people, people are willing to play with me. I give more action. Um, but also other opportunities present, right? So like, for instance, uh, four or five days ago I was playing and I usually play the five ten um, two K cap. It's a deeper game. It plays very different. I enjoy it a lot more than just playing hundred big blind, even if we were playing bigger stakes. Uh, but while all that occurred, what happened was a 50, hundred game popped up and two, two players that I, you know, enjoy playing with 
were short stacking it. One was sitting with like 8K, the other one was sitting with like five, but I was pretty confident that they would replenish. So I did the same. And I had to be semi-mindful um, in the sense that, you know, I, what's on my account isn't truly my bankroll. Mm. But at the same time, I don't have easy access in the moment to just throw 50K on there. So how do you approach that? Right. So like I had 30,000 or 25,000 on the, on, on the account at that time. And I was like, okay, what I'm willing to do is risk 10 because I can a get 10 back on the site, not necessarily tonight, but I won't need it tonight. Um, but in the, in the short term, if I need to, and B, I think the risk is worth the reward. Like I'm pretty sure that this is a profitable spot. That's not going to present itself very often. So I sat with 10 and, uh, in 35 minutes, I won like nine K the, the one player who I thought had about a 15 K stop loss, lost 15 K and the game broke. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think it's a, a great example of how dynamic you need to be in a very closed off environment. Like I'm just always going to be looking for value on that site. Now I'm going to throw a curveball at this too. Okay. Do you think it also makes sense when you take that shot to slightly lower the volatility of your base strategy? Oh my God. Yeah. So I played so differently. Cool. My three bet range from the small blind was just like tight as possibly could be, but it's because also I recognize that this is a shot for the other two. Neither one of them are 50, hundred players. So they're already into a different strategic paradigm than they're used to and playing. Were you, were you afraid that if you double them, they might just leave? Is that yeah, going but on I, in your head at but all? again, like I just accepted that, right? It's just like, okay, that would suck if I lose $8,000 to somebody who bum hunts. But, you know, I know who they are. They're regulars. They're not going to, the money's going to come back to the pool one way or the other. Okay. Uh, it would just take longer to get it 510. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think it's basically what I recognized in that 35 minutes that we played was that two of us greatly adjusted our strategy and the third didn't, and he lost 15K. And I just think that that's like a fish out of water syndrome where he is absolutely drawing stone dead in this three-handed match uh, with the exception of variance, but he's also the most likely to hit and run. No, just briefly, what was the biggest weakness that you thought existed in his game that he didn't adjust for? Um, he seemed to not have a great concept of short stack play. So he was uh, calling too many three bets, opening too large, um, three betting too frequently from the small blind and too, too small of a size. So you're like, in your opinion, you were actually playing tight by my game, standards, by yeah. your standards. Yeah. I, I was playing, I was playing more carefully. Let's put it that way. Okay. I was taking lower volatile lines. I would, I would take hands that were like in a normal game that I'm overrolled for where I think the environment is slightly overfolding or, or yielding to pressure too, too easily. I would take hands that I would three bet like hundred percent frequency and start mixing with it a lot more. Okay. I would three bet the bad player and I would, or the loose player. And I would, I would call it more frequently against the better player. This goes back to what you were saying last time about how you adjust your frequencies by player, not necessarily by range. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's really critical. It's like, you know, the idea of clairvoyance that is casted around the, the live realm is based on the idea that you're in an observable environment and people are so transparent with their actions that you get to develop this like sixth sense where you know exactly what their strategy is without mm -hmm. them divulging it. Well, that happens in all realms online too. When you see somebody open a hundred percent of their buttons, you just know that he's not adhering to construction any longer. And you know that he's wide open to an exploitative uh, counter. And a lot of times, as you kind of mentioned, that counter is just being more mindful of how you're putting money into the pot. Yeah. 
It's really interesting to uh, talk to live guys about this because, I mean, if you're working with a HUD in an online environment, especially with HUDs that have access to the verse hero stat, yeah, like there is a HUD and then there is a verse hero version of the HUD, which will allow you to actually see how much this specific player three bets you. Right. Um, and, and that's really interesting because it can give you insight into how you're perceived by a specific reg. Yeah. What I think is interesting going back to the point that we made earlier about like, what is the mature adjustment to someone who you believe to be going after you? It seems like the guys who are really good at meta wars are the guys who are willing to fix the problem at the, the root, I would yep. say, yeah, which yeah. is the fact that you have, like, you have two options. You can either be the one that fights back by ramping it up to the next level or going back to the level that they're trying to target. Right by three betting you too much, which would be your RFI open. Yeah. So it's just interesting to me that there's different ways to go about it. And in your case, it sounds like you're saying that the way that you choose to, I guess you, you did exploit if that's what you're saying happened. Right. You exploited somebody who was playing potentially too wide by going back to the root of your range construction on a previous action. Yeah. And tightening like, it. Like, so effectively, especially in, in a scenario like this, where it's like, there's a good chance that we're on a ticking clock and any number of outcomes could occur where this person will leave, be it him doubling or him going broke or whatever the case may be. Right? So I'm never afraid of theoretical thresholds, uh, effectively being crossed. I'm never afraid of under defending my big blind in this scenario. I'm never afraid of under three betting. I'm never afraid of over three betting. I'm never afraid of any of these exploitative realms. I don't, 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 I ain't never because I've committed to the idea that I'm going to outwit this person in the short time that we're going to be together because I have a good grasp on what they're doing wrong. So are you not trying to extend the length of the match? No, because I think that it's a finite amount of money up for grabs. The longer the match goes on, the more uh, I think the more opportune or the more opportunity will present itself for him to correct. Oh, see, that's weird. Cause I would think that if you thought you had edge, Mm -hmm. that you would want a lower volatility so that he doesn't potentially double and leave. Well, that's typical fish mentality. Like yeah. If we have a fish at the table, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's make it really extreme. Total raging fish at the table who you know if you double him, he's leaving. Yeah. Lowering volatility is clearly the best strategy. Would you not agree? Yeah. No, no, no. I, I 100% or, agree. Or let's make it, let's do it this way too. Your head's up versus a giant fish at the, at the end of a tournament. Yeah. Limping buttons is potentially starting to look really cool and look maxim maximally lowering volatility. Now I disagree. Okay, tell me um, why. And this, this actually presented itself uh, two summers ago. I, I did commentary on the 5K final table. And the heads-up match became, came down to uh, a Wall Street recreational player and a 21-year-old online heads-up pro. And the online heads-up pro extended the match so long that the structure beat him. So, so he, the blinds almost overtook the skill edge at yeah, that point. Yeah, they played okay, heads cool. up for like six hours in a scenario where he insisted on limping buttons. The rec continued to three to five X buttons. The rec continued to 10X out of, out of the big blind when the button would limp and basically just steered into volatility no matter how hard he tried to curb it. But what was happening up to the point of heads up was that the rec was responding very passively to aggressive action and was actually like overfolding in a lot of scenarios, allowing people to effortlessly chip up through him. So ultimately, by trying to reduce volatility, he ended up increasing it and reducing his skill edge. So there's got to be some sort of balance where 
we reduce volatility intentionally mm-hmm. only to the point where we don't sacrifice so much win rate. See, this volatility is a weird definition because we have to be very careful that we don't mix up volatility with variance. Right. And the right. win rate is really the driving factor in how both of them are determined. So like, well, what people need to understand is that variance is fixed. It's, it's a fixed constant into the game. There will be variance on any given hand, any given scenario, whatever the case may be. It's a byproduct of range versus range uh, interplay. Volatility is what's actually within our control of some degree, right? Like if we go for the, the more volatile line where we invest a lot more money for slightly more returns, we, we have to recognize now that like we're choosing to do that because of the mistake we're expecting it to cause. Which affects the win rate Correct. that you have. Yeah, it, you're right. It, it still all distills down to win rate. That's going to be the motivator, right? It, it, you, you're going to want volatility when it increases win rate. You're going to want to reduce volatility when it increases win rate. But it needs to, in, in order to justify taking on that volatility, that volatility, it needs to increase win rate enough. Yeah. And, and that's what I think the models are useful for. I'm not saying I've solved this. No, but, no, no, I understand. But I guess what you're outlining in that heads up model is if that kid... I don't know what he was doing. If he decided to limp a bunch of buttons. He limped or, 100% of buttons. Okay, so he lowers volatility to the point where he reduces his win rate so much that on average, he would have rather kept volatility higher. Right, and I think the easiest way to, to recognize this... He probably this, also ran bad too, though. No, not really. Well, I mean, he ultimately got cooled off queens versus aces whenever the blinds... Like, they started the heads up, like, I think it was like 100 to 40 blinds. He had like 100 to the Rex 40. Okay, um, and they played all the way down to like when they were like, I think 20 versus 20. So it sounds like what you're saying is he decreased volatility to such an extent that he sacrificed way too much edge in the process. Yeah. And I think the easiest way to understand this in game is to, uh, try to, rather than assuming that your opponent is, uh, operating as a rational actor who is employing some variation of a decent strategy instead Look the guy in the face and recognize where he's weak. You know, you've just been playing with him for X amount of hours to get down the heads up. All you have to understand is that if he's going to overfold the big blind versus your raise, you're incentivized to raise. That makes sense. If, if when, and it's easy to understand too under the paradigm of like what are stack depths, what are his natural incentives, and how often will he disobey them, right? So when they're say like 100 blinds and 50 blinds effective, what's the natural trend of a recreational player? Take too many flops and fold too yes. much money away. Yes, 100%, right? It's play too passively pre, invest a bunch of money that you're never going to see a return on, and then give up the hand later. So what's the easiest strategy, the strategic route there? You raise, just chip away. Just raise and see better. Yeah, you just say, chip away. Unless he thought that he was also going to fold too much in limp pots too. But in that case, you're not maximizing the mistake of the player that you it also It also it, it goes against the whole reason why the recreational player is investing too much money than giving up, Right. The whole idea behind that concept is that he is subconsciously trying to get lucky enough to where he has clear equity and is willing to invest a pile of money. When it goes limp limp, that that trigger is now turned off because he's not in the paradigm of this guy has a stronger hand because he invested more money pre. See, that's interesting. I don't think that's wrong. I just don't, I never considered it that way. Right. So what do you think happens then in a limped pot? He becomes more willing to fight back. He becomes very polar, right? So like I was, I was paying very close attention. He would just like eight X with queen Jack out of the, out of the big now. 
instead of just taking a flop. Okay. Because now he basically gets to flip the, the rolls of volatility on its head, huh. and he knows that he can't be choosing enough good hands to be limping with where it matters. He's just going to win this blind a lot, and when he doesn't win this blind, he's going to still face a pretty mergy range that calls the queen jack is going to do okay again. So you think the reg actually drove the fish into a correction? Yep. A proper correction. Wasn't, that wasn't helpful for the reg. 100%. Huh. And the, the match just was like, uh, it was very back and forth when it didn't need to be. It could have been a two-hour steamroll, I think. I think that sort of plays into not wanting, being careful not to well, create such a shift in the match model that you're not even prepared for how to navigate it past that point. It's, like, it's the desire to not shift off of what you know. When he plays online against other good regs, what he did is appropriate. Yeah, That's just the model to playing heads up. And so he just defaults to what he knows to be good. But, and that's why I say like there's that, there's that struggle in transitioning to live. It's not that this kid wasn't the far superior player. Of course he was. right? And it wasn't even that he made any mistakes. He played so many hands damn near perfectly. But what he didn't do was maximize his win rate. And it was right there for the taking. It was laid out on a platter. But he wasn't able to recognize like, oh, this isn't Linus Lovem against... Mm. This is just an easy execution. So he almost prepared for something that he didn't need to prepare for. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I think generally speaking, like, um, and, and this is just kind of like me deferring to being an old school guy who grinded through the come up. It's like, you have to have this bit of a killer instinct where you're like, all of that is mine. And it's just a matter of what's the fastest path to accruing it. Rather than thinking like, I have a massive edge. I'm not gonna lose this heads up match very long or very often. So I'm just going to like stretch out the volatility as much as I can. And I think there could be a happy medium where sure. it could make sense as long as you're confident that you're not going to drive the opponent into a proper correction. Well, that's the thing. The, the more talented your opposition, the, the more likely your approach is going to be correct right. to be risk averse. What else you got on your little list? Oh, I got a lot, man. We, uh, I was trying to keep this vacation mode. You know, I'm, I'm here. I'm in my... My fucking Miami gear, fresh back from the beach. I can't get over how good this is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal some from it's you. It's amazing, at the end. man. I I went to the beach, stayed. Or oh yeah, how was that? Let me let me rephrase that. I went to Fort Lauderdale, and I had a beach condo for five days. I didn't get to go to the beach once. My only off day, it rained. I saw you post that picture though on Instagram. It looked like you were on your balcony once. Yeah, I got to see the beach. That was great. Miami. Uh. What's up team? We've made it to Fort Lauderdale. Coming at you live from this nice little condo on the beach that my good friend Steve let me borrow for the week. We are here for the 5K WPT main event starting about two hours ago. This is this is the one that I got third place in two years ago, looking to avenge that finish. First place should be about 800K, and right now, we need it. Had a good morning routine, just finished my bone broth, and uh, I'm ready to get after and rip it. Let's go. All right, 
Just made dinner break. Interesting start to the day. I had three full starting stacks at one. Oh no, four. Sorry, I was up to 160. Uh, one big hand I kind of want to talk about. Pick up pocket eights on the button and it folds to me. And there is an older gentleman in the big blind who an orbit prior, I raised ace king from the button he defended and it came king, queen, six. He check called turn three of diamonds, putting back doors. He check raised rather large and I folded face up and he showed a set of sixes. So he's an older gentleman, plays uh, pretty tight ranges, I would say. Has it most of the time when he's aggressive. So just bear that in mind. Uh, I open pocket eights to the minimum. He three bets me to seven big blinds and I continue through a call. I think the blinds at this point were 153. So I think I opened the six, he made it 2K. I call, uh, flop is king 10, 10, two spades. Check, check, turn eight of hearts. He bets 3000, I call, river eight of spades. He bets 6,500. I raise to 30,000 with 22,000 behind and he shoves and has kings. So we did it. That got us up to 160. Had kind of a, a shitty last couple levels. We have about 120 now dinner. That's not me. That's the wrong table. Those are my chips. All right, day one in the books. We bagged and tagged 195,000, coming back to 2K big blind. We have piles. I have piles of energy right now, so I hit up 24 hour fitness, gonna get a little sweat in. Most importantly, tomorrow, beach day. Stay tuned. What's up, team? Day two in rainy Florida. Um, I didn't get any beach footage yesterday because it just poured all day, per usual, for South Florida. Um, it's going okay. We're four out of the money on dinner. I'm not doing great. I have like 160K. Blinds are about to be 4.8. Came into the day with 190. It's pretty likely that I'm going to cash this thing. And anything can happen at that point. We have a reasonable uh, reshove stack once the bubble bursts. So we'll be looking to ladder up. Alright, they made short work of me in the 2650. I'm now firing a satellite for the 25k. We make a seat, we're gonna play, obviously. If we don't, I think I'm gonna hop the next flight out of here. Down by the river that night. That's a wrap on Florida. We busted everything. Uh, min cash to the main, and then busted the 1 million guarantee, bubbled the 25k satellite. Ended up with a net loss of 3,300. So, headed back to Vegas. Uh, gonna get back on the grind. And I think we're gonna start the 100k challenge. So stay tuned for that. What a miserable fucking trip. <laughs> How many tournaments did you play? 
Uh, I played four, three in one day. Wow. Um, no, sorry, I played three, but yeah, three in one day. I cashed the main for main cash. Just very dis- disheartening. I had a pile of chips, ultimately shoved 20 blinds from the cut with sevens, ran into nines on the button. I'm out. Standard. Um, jumped in their 2,500 million guarantee, busted. I, I jumped in with like 15 blinds, busted right away. And then I got a 25K satellite. I was in for two bullets. Uh, made the final seven where four people, four places paid. And no joke, it was like me and four or five wrecks. And I just never stood a chance, man. <laughs> so you didn't end up playing the 25K? No. You just bounced? I, I couldn't take it. I literally... I, I had a flight booked for Tuesday that would have allowed me to just like make a more executive decision on Monday whether or not I wanted to play the 25K or whether I just wanted to hang on the beach for a day, like have this beautiful condo. I could just chill. But instead, I paid double the cost to get the fuck out of there as soon as possible. I was on a flight by 10 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> I feel like this is what you always do when you get involved over there. I mean, I just like, land. I just default back to discipline like in maybe an unhealthy way, like the first thing that came across my mind was like, if I book this flight, I can be in the gym by three o'clock. And if I stay here, I'm probably not going to go to the gym. That's very gritty of you, Matt. Uh, is it, or is it just like kind of my, my crutch? No, I think that's it's like, like the self-imposed punishment. You I know? mean, that's the reason that I didn't even go to Florida. Yeah. And just I didn't want to get out of routine. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm starting to realize it's so, it, there's so much opportunity cost in getting off the normal schedule, but I'm also weighing it against the cash game money right. that I could make if I don't go and all that. It's a hard equation. And like, then there, there's obviously the dimension that if I did bank this tournament, it provides me with such better opportunities for moving up in cash. Yeah. Like I think there's so much room for actually being able to map this stuff better. I'll keep coming back to that. Cause I think it's no, so I, I, I agree for sure. And it's, it's so, so what's your me. main reason behind going, if you had to say like, it's, it's just something that where it's like, to me, again, like as a professional poker player, your job is to, uh, it, it's to invest in the highest EV so spots. So I'm, I'm assuming you think that being in Florida was the highest EV opportunity. It's not even close to me. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, it's an easy decision. I'm currently not playing the big game. And uh, my alternatives would have been to stay here and just do shit for the business. But also it's just like, it's $800,000 the first place for two of the three events and a quarter million for the third. And, you know, it's really fucking soft. And your decision to not play the 25K at the end, is that effect? Like, did you actually think that you were tilted? Yeah. By the fact, or by the time that you busted like three in a row? I knew that if I didn't win the seat, I was just gonna be raging. Because like, I'm just supposed to win the seat in that spot. And it yeah. really high. And then on top of it, I busted myself. Like I made a stupid play. Um, where I, I just like blacked out because it was 2 a.m. and I was over it. And yeah, it's just like, you know, it's not anything to be proud of. But the tournament would have been the next day? Yeah, th- which isn't a big deal. That, that was fine. It was just one of those things where it's like, I wasn't thinking all that clearly after having been playing for 16 hours. God, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when you were on Rage Tilt after busting that, determining whether or not you wanted to pay double for a ticket on the way Oh home. my god, man. I literally booked and unbooked like four different flights. I just picture you pacing. I was, I was just in the car. I was in the car staring at my phone. So here was the decision matrix that I went through. I had a Southwest flight booked for uh, 11 a.m. on Tuesday, 
which would have meant that I had to stay 24 hours in Florida and just enjoy myself, which I'm fucking awful at. Right. Just can't do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, you were alone. Yeah, that, that's also true. Then the alternative was I could book an 11 a.m. flight on Southwest for $600. But that was, that was it. Fixed cost. There was no cheaper way of getting around it. Mm. Um, now, I get to use my 250 credit from Tuesday towards that 600 so I'm really just paying a, a, a balance of 350 and I won't need to book the early bird uh, whatever in order to get a good seat because I'm, I'm paying up for premium economy or whatever the fuck they qual- qualified as. And I did pay that 25 for Tuesday. So really the Tuesday ticket cost me 275 the, the Monday ticket cost me 600 So it's like $325 to get the fuck out of here. And yeah, there's a lot of value in getting home a day early. Yeah, there's a third option. There's a 6 p.m. JetBlue flight that's $300 on the dot. So now it's $25, but I still have to spend half the day in Florida. And by the time I get back to Vegas, it's going to be like 9 p.m. And my day is basically going to be shot. So I'm still left to my own devices to go to the gym, eat well, do all these things in Florida, which I had already committed that like there's no fucking way I'm going to do this. So really, it just came down to two choices. Either I'm going to commit to the entire day of enjoying myself and go home Tuesday or I'm going to get the hell out of here at 11 a.m. and uh, try to right the ship as soon as I land. So you picked the earliest one. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I like that choice. But I also think like a day for me to be able to come back a day earlier and get back onto the schedule that I have or play the games that I usually play, like that's almost a no-brainer for a few hundred dollars, yeah. assuming that you have decent edge What if you come home schedule. and lose 8K? In the games that you usually play. <laughs> well, like you said, it's hindsight's twenty twenty. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt bad, man. It felt real bad. But I did hit the gym, and uh, I went through one of the worst lack. Most, like, I was so fucking jet lagged. I landed at like one thirty. I was at the gym by three, and you know, at that point, it's actually six East Coast time. I've been up since seven a.m. East Coast time. I was just dr- I I couldn't get enough ghost. I mean, I'm starting to realize more and more that like, I really started to try to map this out. When I'm off my schedule, if I do something that goes off my schedule, I usually lose at least a full day. Something substantial. Yeah. Like if I go out drinking or stay up substantially later than I'm used to staying up, uh, I've started to realize that it's unlikely that I will recover the next day. Right. So it'll kill my productivity to the point where if I map that over the course of a year, and this is why I've said I think you have the sober advantage as someone who never even drinks. Yeah. It's like I really started to see that like if you're going out once a week and your relaxation day, if it's a drinking day or a sure. partying day, is going to basically spill over into the next day, you're probably losing on average one day of productivity a week. Right. If you're, that, if you're living that type of lifestyle. And I said, okay, so over 52 weeks, that's like 50 days of the year that I'm losing in productivity. Right. And I think to be fair, like naturally speaking, uh, you'll just, you'll just waver here and there. So you're probably going to lose 20 anyway, but yeah, you don't have to complicate the problem and triple it. I mean, if you could find me 30 extra days a year, I'd be willing to like some of your questions are like, would you rather I would do a lot to pick up 30 free days a year. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, for th- sure. Time is a valuable commodity. There's definitely no getting around that. And that was also like weighed really big into my decision. It was like, I know my travel day is going to be shit no matter what. So how about the mindset balance of it too? Like when you are off of your typical schedule or I'll ask you straight up, like, do you think you played well the day that you came back and you lost that 8K? 
Yeah, actually. Or do you yeah, think I, you were still tilted or jet lagged or? No, I, I think I actually played pretty well. Uh, I kind of like went through and reviewed the hands. Uh, I was definitely tired. Uh, I probably wasn't absolutely my sharpest, not exactly my A plus game, but I think that it would be pretty easy to run the hands uh, through like an EV calculator and just see that I probably ran below expectation. And I don't even care about that, to be honest. Like when that occurs, um, I'm getting a lot better and more mature at understanding that I didn't deserve to run neutral, right? In the sense that like some of my biggest days, I'm out high-fiving people saying like, I played really fucking well, mm. but I also have to acknowledge that like, I definitely ran above expectation. Right, 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 right. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to put in its place is we're too hard on ourselves on losing sessions and we're way too entitled to our winning sessions. Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing that allows you to zoom out and, and take that point of view that I'm having is some level of security and sense of uh, confidence in yourself, right? So if any one of these pots actually affects my my day-to-day -day life, then it's going to be impossible for me to say, like, that's fucking bullshit. Uh, you know, I ran good some other time. That's why I'm running yeah, bad yeah, now. Yeah. But, like, when it has no impact whatsoever and you're just, like, grinding, it's pretty easy to take a step back and just be like, hey, it all comes out even in the end. And it's weird because I think what makes it easier, too, is when you are balanced enough not to be affected by the actual monetary loss, it's easier to hold a truly balanced perspective of what's going on and saying, like, none of these pots I'm losing are probably worth more than five BBs in mistake if I am making a mistake in any of them. Right. Like, realistically, yeah. once you get to a good enough level, it's pretty hard to make a five BB mistake. Yeah, in a for sure. Unless your meta is just like, unless you're swinging for the fences and he's, he happens to be clipping your legs out from under you. What at, if you at put in time, what if you put in 250 big blinds with sixes preflop? I mean, you're probably out of line and yeah. I hope your read is right because if it's not, then you're in the territory that I'm saying he was wrong. Nick, I had aces. You had a, Oh, he had sixes. You had aces. Yeah. I don't make that goddamn mistake. I don't even three bet that hand. I mean, I would make that mistake versus you sometimes. Sure. If I thought you were off your rocker. I mean, it's a lot of bets to get in preflop with two sixes. I mean, I got 800 BBs in versus you with ace queen and poker out loud. That's so. true. <laughs> but I don't view it like that. Now, I've always wanted to talk to you about that hand. Not that we have to do it right now. But no, let's do it. That was a type of hand where the three bet size was so bloated that it, it bloated my four bet a lot. And it's just, it, when I look back on that hand, I think it's a spot where I'm reading the range that I put both of us on. Mm -hmm against the SPR, and I noticed that everybody on the Solve for Y team that looks at that hand, they look at it in terms of this is how many BBs are going in. I don't see it like that when the initial preflop raise sizing is so bloated. Like the preflop raise, then Chewy, I think, flatted in the middle, yeah. and your squeeze was like really large, because it was accounting for the fact that we were already deep. Right. So now my four bet is, very, is really bloated. Yeah, but your original- Was it a six bet? Because you five bet back, and then I six bet with some yeah. fold equity. Yeah. Uh, your your original open wasn't that large. I think it was three X. Yeah, and then Chewy flatted. You yep. squeezed. I, my four bet was bloated because it was accounting for the fact that there's depth. Yeah. So to give everybody a little bit of context, because not everyone's seen the hand, uh, I'm sure we'll cut to it. Seems playable. Uh, we have a very easy squeeze spot here. We were going to be pretty wide with uh, what we would be able to squeeze with. Having two kings is a nice addition to this. So um, we want to look at what we want to have happen moving forward. Um, with a lot of our polarized range, we're looking for a four bet or a fold uh, from the field. I obviously want to leave as much room as humanly possible 
for if Nick folds, Chewy can call, or uh, if the sizing is appropriate, Nick can potentially five bet. So I'm gonna go something in the neighborhood of 180, which is the size that I've chosen earlier, with some success in this spot. Raise to 180. I think Matt's perception of my opening range is that it's pretty wide. Uh, I think his three bet range is probably constructed a little bit wider than maybe it should be at optimal. I really, really enjoy playing four bet pots in position, especially with high flopping power. Uh, my hand falls into a category where it's just pretty far above the average hand in my opening range, and it performs really well in a four bet pot. I don't really have a problem with being deep. I think it's going to favor me having position. So I'm going to make a four bet here and just try to channel this into a line that I'm pretty well studied in and uh, where I really don't think I can make too many mistakes because having position is just really potent here. We're really deep. Uh, I think at least 500. I think that should encourage me to four bet to a, a larger sizing than usual. That said, there's reasons to potentially just make it a sizing that Matt will definitely peel. If I think my post-flop advantage is gonna be really great against him, if I can get him to peel even wider, then I think normal models of what the best sizing is kind of fall apart because they don't account for post-flop edge. Overall, I don't really think I can go wrong here. Um, I'm not gonna overcomplicate it and try to be a perfectionist about the four bet sizing because the smaller I go, the wider I think he peels and I think that sort of just uh, leads to more edge post-flop. I don't wanna go so small that I just let him peel his whole range correctly. So uh, he's making it 180. I think I'm just gonna, I think I'm just gonna three exit. I think he's probably in the mood to, to dance a little bit. So I think maybe something like 550 is cool. So here's the beauty of Nick going a little bit on the small side here. Uh, his range can still be fairly wide. Um, <clears throat> when he does choose to four bet, he's pretty incentivized to do so to shut Chewy out of the pot. So we do expect this to be a bit more of a value dense range that is expanded in a linear fashion. So we're gonna see some suited broadways, maybe down to pocket tens, uh, some ace 10 suited and better, et cetera. With that said, that range is still pushing a fair amount of equity against kings, and we want to play as close to an all-in pot as possible. With the sizing that he's chosen, he gives me the availability to choose uh, a five bet size that would be roughly a third of his stack without too much of a problem. The issue with that is once I do that, I can no longer be linear in nature. However, since we've identified that he is probably pretty linear in nature, um, that becomes difficult. So if I rep a pole, that kind of forces his linear range into a tough spot that ultimately is either gonna gamble with me and call or just fold. So I'm actually gonna ease off a little bit. Instead of betting a third of his stack, I'm gonna bet closer to a quarter. Um, so I think he started the hand with 2.6 just shy of 8,000. So we're gonna make it 2,100 here. And hope that we didn't get cooled off by aces. 
Uh, that's a really big. That's a really big five bet. Basically, I mean, it looks like he's basically putting himself at that leverage point of almost feigning commitment. The SPR is really bloated just for the fact that his three bet is bloated to account for the depth and because Chewy was caught in between. There's no way that I could justify folding a hand that's a premium blocker versus a line that's so polarized from Matt. Like, maybe his range looks like kings, ace, king, aces here, and versus that range I have pretty stellar removal. Um, with how much he's bloated the, the size of the five, but I just have to jam here. I think calling and taking a flop is subjecting me to potentially uh, misplaying the hand by, by putting myself in a situation where my visibility is low on boards where I don't pair. I think just taking max fold equity and, um, and sort of just like preserving full realization is the best way to go here. And I feel pretty good about my blockers, so I'm just gonna shove it. All in. He's all in. He still has eight combos of ace-king to his six combos of aces. If we assume he's not shoving anything else uh, and then the other one combination of kings, it's like pretty good. All right. Okay, go. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I saw the ace in the door, I just, uh, just assumed. Talk about that hand in terms of how many BBs got punted off. I think it looks really bad. Well, I think the reason why we frame it that way is because there's like a, a natural fluidity to thresholds. And no matter how much you play with that, uh, you crossed it. If I believe that your three bet range doesn't change based on the sizings that were used, I totally agree with well, you. Well, it's not that, it's my three to five range. I'm definitely three betting way worse hands than ace queen, probably for that size, but I'm not going to choose very many or any of them necessarily. Like I'll probably just under bluff through my five bets there. And I think that's where I misread you. Yeah, because like I just hand. have the opportunity to call. And I, I think know that my, sounds... I, I don't even remember my commentary, but I think it was something like, I just don't believe that Matt can control his five bet frequency in this right. spot to make ace queen not a profitable. Six bet ball, and, and you could something. be you could be correct, but the way that I would personally be doing it is like I would I would be willing to get thin value with jacks more so than I would be trying to bluff you out with ace ten suited. So I think what's happening in that spot it's one of those spots where you are anticipating that I'm going to read you wide, and you would actually just be narrow, potentially yeah. even expanding value. Correct. Which is the most, and that's what happened in that queen jack heart yeah. hand that they yeah, yeah, flashed yeah. to uh, in the last episode. There was a spot where you read me as ready to pounce on your expected wideness and you actually expanded value. Right. Probably the coolest part of the game, in my opinion, is yeah. to be able to... And it started with a, po with, with a flop read where um, I anticipated... Chin donked you flatted and I just over flatted like air. Yeah, or I anticipated that like you would see that formation as my range being incredibly nothing heavy and Chin's lead being shit. I mean, we all knew his lead was weak. Right. So it's like you just see two levels, of two layers of weakness. And I think I said this in my commentary. I'm going to choose the call here because I think Nick will come along and then make a play. 
Do you guys donk weak? I mean, and I know that it's part of your exploitative strategy, but I wonder what would happen if you started to. Well, I hated, I hated his lead there. But he will do that with strong hands. Yeah, yeah, certainly. for sure. But like the but particular I just don't hand he chose in that spot, multiway, I think is like problematic. I think part of your guys' methodology is to be donking quite frequently versus weak competition. People who will under-respond, yeah. Yeah. Leading into me and you, I think, is a mistake because especially like when my assumption is that you're going to over-respond. Yeah, and then at that point, it's pretty hard to correct when you're out of position at a huge range disadvantage. Because right. technically, I'm not even out of line if I float that really wide with no. depth. Yeah, not that board texture in particular. What's going on with your glass there? You got oil? I'm tapped, man. No, I don't know. Conrad bought these. These are... Uh... These are our goblets for the day. We were supposed to get like pina colada glasses. I was envisioning like some plastic palm tree. I mean, I'm really jacked off off that. I'm ready to go to the I gym. I love it. Good. Uh, you know, this was supposed to be a light podcast. We failed again. Cause, no, we did okay, I think. I mean, we did okay for you and I. But like this, this wasn't exactly let's have a uh, Hawaiian lay on and have a good time. It's true. But I am going to bring it full circle. I'm not letting you off the hook. Uh, before we decided to do the pod, I wanted to do um, this like idea of uh, would you rather, but I want to put a little twist on it. So okay. you might not have seen it because I sent it to you on Twitter, but do you know who David Goggins is? Yeah, I know Goggins, Navy SEAL dude. Yeah, best, I mean. I thought you would love he, him. He's my spirit animal, man. I just love this guy's fucking intensity. There's nothing better than like just getting to the end of the clip and just him looking right dead in the camera going, stay hard. <laughs> it really is pretty just great. Like, yeah, man. Like I need you to be my alarm clock. Just he does like, this thing lately where uh, he refers to the moment where you look another man in the eye and realize that he's that you're going harder than him as taking souls. <laughs> so he gave this example of like uh, a guy who he was working out with. It was on his Instagram post recently. He says this guy was acting like he goes up to the same mountain that Goggins is running at every day. Yeah. So Goggins films this Instagram post where he's running up the mountain saying that he went back to the mountain three consecutive days looking for this guy who said that he goes there. And he finally runs into the guy and the guy isn't running up or down the mountain. The guy is taking the gondola on the way down, taking the easy way out basically. Yeah. And Goggins says he made eye contact with him in the gondola while Goggins is running up the 3000 foot hill. And he refers to it as the moment where he took his soul. <laughs> it's just hilarious. I love it. I was listening to a Rogan podcast. I can't recall the guest, but he said that Goggins lived with him for 30 days. Yeah, it was the guy that owned that basketball team or something. Yeah, maybe. I, I honestly don't recall. Because I just saw a clip of it. I didn't see the whole pod. He did it as sort of an experiment. He had him come live with him and his wife. Yeah. And he said that like as soon as Goggins got there, he just looked at him and he goes, we're going to do something that fucking sucks every day. Yeah. And it's just like that, that level of intensity is really difficult to mimic. Um, but keeping with that theme okay. and the concept of grit and doing things that just suck that you don't want to do, uh, I wanted to work that into the would you rathers. So I have a few. I don't know if you came up with any or not. If you did, we can ping pong back and forth. If not, we can just go through mine. Let's do yours, and I'll think of some All right. along the way. All right. So I have four in particular that uh, kind of cover – uh, a litany of, of areas. Basically, I wanted to go through things that are physically challenging, mentally challenging, emotionally challenging, socially challenging, okay. whatever. All right. So the first one is, would you rather give up sex, so full abstinence, masturbation included, for one year, or give up working out, uh, again, sports included, running, cardio, anything along those yeah. lines? So basically, would you rather be abstinent or sedentary for one year? I'm going to answer them all from the version of my best self. So I'm going to answer them all 
on the level of what I think would actually be healthier for me to do. Okay. Which I hope that's the choice I would make, even though the sex thing would be well. That really, really that's kind of interesting because like I think the healthier choice is, is obvious in all of these, but I think the incentivized choice is very different person to person. See, that's interesting to me because I would hope that if a person declared something healthier, that that would be the equivalent to incentivized. Have you seen the standard American diet? Well, I know people are making bad decisions all the time. Yeah, but you think you're you think you abstain? abstain? I would hope that I couldn't live with myself if I clarified, like in this one, this is yeah. really easy. It's clearly less healthy for me to not have any physical activity than to not have any sexual activity. Have you ever, have you ever not touched yourself for a year? I went 28 days and then I had a wet dream. That's what happens. <laughs> That's true. But I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's anything really like unhealthy about that. I mean, it could be wrong. There's definitely people doing it. Oh, um, man. But yeah, I know how cranky I would be if I didn't work out. Yeah. And I also think it would be really bad for my stress levels. Now, the sex thing could all, like I remember toward the end of that one month challenge that I went on, I was in Thailand when I did it. Um, and I remember I felt like there was literally like a wire in my chest that was gonna snap by that 28th day. Really? Like it was just very stressful yeah, to yeah. not be able to have any sort of like release. Yeah. It's like a release valve almost. Um, so I say it now saying that it would reduce my stress levels to be able to take it all out in the gym. But I don't have any experience with what happens after month one. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty confident. Well, for me, like it's not, it's a no brainer. Like I could definitely just not go a year. I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go a year without working out. There's just no way. Um, and I'm pretty confident that. Yeah. The no, the, the, the total. No fat. That'd be tough. It would be tough, but I also like was of the impression that like giving up porn would be nearly impossible, and I literally haven't watched a single second of porn. In I mean, giving up porn is way different than giving up just normal ejaculation. Yeah, but functions. like in some ways, it's it's like you're just giving up uh, instant gratification. I, right? I like that. So I would say I would hope that we could both find different avenues to channel those energies into yeah if we needed to and i think we're both agreeing that if we had to give up fitness in, in some i mean there's just a good chance i'd be the fucking incredible hulk by the end just angry and jacked that's what happens when people go to jail yeah, yeah. but they can still whack off there yeah that's true that 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 really is a big caveat all right so the second one um would be would you rather eat nothing but boiled chicken rice and eggs why boiled because it's the most plain, yeah, the tasteless version of chicken. Okay. Boiled chicken, rice, and eggs until you obtain 10% body fat or eat whatever you want, but uh, under the, the, the caveat that no matter how little or how much you ate, you were guaranteed to gain weight until you were finally obese. What happens after I hit 10% body fat in the first choice? You're free. You're free to do. I mean, clearly that. And, and same with once you become a beast. Once you become a beast, your body will reset and you're free to oh. live your life accordingly. So you can lose the weight once you become a beast. Yeah, I, I choose the first here all day because as someone who's been fat before and gone through iterations of diets, I remember. I can't wait to dig up that picture. Yeah, you have to show it. <laughs> I went through a pretty awesome transformation, uh, I think, in 2017 where like I'm the type of person that I've done this already I intentionally get fat before going on a diet like yeah I'll be getting overweight and then I'll be like all right I'm just gonna go all out and gain 10 more pounds to leverage myself for when I actually start the diet 
you'll see in this picture, I think I took it when I weighed like, who has this? It's on my box somewhere. I might've given it to Rob too. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw it on your Facebook too. But uh, yeah, I, I started at like 190, just like pretty, pretty huge. Uh, maybe I was closer to 200 and I got down to maybe like 160, pretty, pretty lean. And at that point, I think I was at around 10% body fat. And I came out of that diet thinking, I won't ever get really big again because the process of dropping the weight is just really not worth it. Yeah. Like I never balked in my life. I never needed to. I was always like a big, thick kid from day one uh, until like three or four years ago. Um, I just decided that like I was going to go for it. And I just wanted to see because I pretty much tried and experimented with like every version of dieting, weightlifting, cardio, list, hit, like mm -hmm. everything, right? And I had good ideas of like, uh, what the, the result path would look like for each individual one and mixing and matching and everything else. But none of it really led to that optimal body type, right? Nothing really resulted in me being sub 10% other than just being a college athlete. Like that was when I was in my best shape. Do you even want to be sub 10? I think I would like to carry myself between like 10 and 12. I like 12. Yeah. I mean, I've been at 13 multiple times in adulthood. In college, I was somewhere between like 9 and 12 pretty consistently. Uh, and so I what happened after you went for it? So I just, I had never been 200 pounds in my life. I had always. Did you do like a dirty bulk? Um, sort of. So every Sunday I would eat whatever the fuck I wanted. And then the other six days, it was literally just like as much steak and potatoes as I could possibly okay. consume. Like I was literally having like a 20 ounce ribeye every day for six days a week. And then on Sundays I would have like mac and cheese and hot dogs and shit like that. Nice, nice. Um, so I just like really went after it and I'd never been 200 pounds in my life. I'd always flirted between like 190 and 197, I think was like my, my peak. Uh, and I just shot up to like 230. And to be honest, outside of like, I guess like, I just look bloated, but only with my shirt off, like my face actually probably looked healthier because I naturally have like a really skinny face mm. and a really skinny neck. So like it probably just like reached a pretty natural state. And my, my chest and shoulders kind of remained the same. My arms like were a little bit less cut, but my midsection just like looked bloated as hell. Mm. Everything else just went to my legs. I think my, uh, I want to say my quads went up like three I mean, and a half you got, inches. You got big legs. Yeah. I, and I, I have naturally big legs, but they went, they were, they were probably like 29 inches in, in uh, circumference. So it's like that I was, I was too big. I, I was uncomfortable all the time. Like I couldn't wait to lose How much weight. did you weigh at the peak? 235. Wow. So I went from 235 down to like 205 quickly, maybe two months working with Rob on just like uh, a lot of high intensity cardio circuits and stuff like that. But I was like really puffy at like 205 now. And I just couldn't for the life of me like get past it. And I was bitching about it nonstop. And he's like, he's like, you look fine. Like this is, this is normal. You lost 30 pounds. Like you're fine. Yada, yada, yada. It took me like a year and a half to lose the next like eight pounds to get back to my normal weight. So you know what I'm talking about then? Yeah. So after going through that, would you ever put yourself in that position? No again? benefit whatsoever. Yeah. I didn't enjoy the food. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't end up like more muscular when it was all said and done. I had the same muscle density, uh, but I had to deal with like this softness for like 18 months. That was just so uncomfortable and so awful. It's just like, why would, like, how do bodybuilders do it? I mean, there's a lot of, downside to putting on that much weight. I've only done it once or twice, I think. 
but I think most of my answers will keep going, but I'm starting to realize that I gravitate towards not wanting to go through the correction phase ever again. <laughs> sure. So like uh, the first one's a little bit different cause it's like, which would cause you more stress? Well, these, these first two also were like, um, which would you choose immediate grat self gratification or long term? Yeah. I think I'm, I'm at a stage where if I really sit down and think about it, I can't really, I'll have too much guilt if I choose the, the easy one. Right. So these next two are a little bit different in nature. They're not about self gratification or immediacy or anything like okay. that. It's just which torture would you rather endure? Um, so the first one is, would you rather run a hundred mile ultra marathon and you can train for it? It's not just like cold. Okay. Uh, or do a 40 day water fast. No food, only water. Mm -hmm. I've only done, uh, first of all, the first I've ever run is a half marathon and I really fucked my hip flexors up. Yeah. Like I made the mistake of, okay, so the night before I went out to run this, I met somebody at a bar who said that it's this little hack that you can have dark beer before a marathon <laughs> as the only thing. And it okay. like works really well. Sure. And let's just say like, I took that and ran with it as someone who at the time was looking for like easy hacks. So I like got drunk before this half marathon. Yeah. Like I didn't eat anything. I had these three dark beers and I remember I just pushed myself way too hard. And I remember failing like halfway through and like my hip flexors totally locked up. Haven't been the same since. And I've had hip problems ever since. So that's, I don't even know if I could do a hundred. Yeah. I'd like to think that if I trained for it, I could. Goggins would say you could. Goggins would tell me that when my body fails, I'm only at 40%. That's so, right. Um, what was the second one? Uh, uh, 40 day 40 water day fast. Water fast. Longest water fast I've ever done is five days. And it's really tough. Yeah. Like after the, after that point kicks in where you start getting lightheaded, um, the hardest part about it is you just start to rationalize like really easily. Yeah. I think this is something they do in, in Navy SEAL training too, where like you can't, you have to stay up for like four days or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. And the, I guess it's Sleep deprivation is dangerous it's, though. It's really wicked dude. And like to think how much it actually plays into the performance cycles too. I mean, it's the main reason that I got the aura ring was to try to track how well I'm sleeping. Uh, my brother was telling me, he read a bunch of books too about how, uh, if you're getting less than eight hours, the data is like tremendously bad looking for people who get less than eight hours of sleep. So knowing how important it is, um, I find it hard to believe that I would be benefit. Okay. I think it, it, it's hard for me to figure out how I would benefit from a 40 day water fast unless I could solve the, the massive fatigue rationalization problem. Yeah. So I feel like I'd rather train for a hundred and, just risk it. Is there, is there a threshold of days where you would choose the water fast over, over the hundred? Like what about 30? No, I, I, well, considering the longest I've ever gone is five and I, it started to like, I, I was bedridden at five. Wow. Like okay. I was just naughty. And maybe I know Cal I was, Anderson just did like a 35 day one during the Bellagio five diamond. It's probably because I'm just not trained for yeah, it. Yeah. And right. I was well, out it's of the same shape. thing. Like you could train for this too. All right. So that's fair. So let's pretend that I, because who knows what happens after like, you know, day eight, if you're healthy. I mean, I hear great right. things about it. I hear like the most pristine clarity ever sure. kicks in. So I'm biased on this. Um, but I do think it'd be really cool to be able to train for a hundred. Like that'd be a, a really cool bragging rights. Yeah. To be able so, to say that. Yeah. So for me, like, I think my discipline lies in pain more than it lies in uh, being feeble, I guess. 
and i guess like no matter how that's much that's a cool pain, point so the hundred would yeah be easier for yeah you. like no matter how much pain there is associated with the hundred i feel like i could press through like i just have a high tolerance i have determination like there's an end end goal that i'm in control of getting cool. to i can relate to that a lot because it doesn't leave you as susceptible to the feeble rationalizations right. that take place when you're just like feeling, s I mean, don't get me wrong. We'd probably feel really weak toward the end of a hundred mile race. Yeah. But, but like you have to police yourself during this 40 day fast. Yeah. And like, you know, so not, time, so time seems to be like the dimension that we're talking about. Yeah. Pressure so. under pressure over time. We're choosing the one that would be faster. Yeah. Cause how long does it take you to run in a hundred? Like, uh, a lot of guys are two doing days, it. No, three days? most guys are doing it. Like ultra marathoners are doing it sub 20, 20 hours for sure. That's crazy. Yeah. In what uh, conditions? Probably pretty decent ones. Just like, you know, running here to Barstow. Or not, and you can have as much water as you want on that run? Yeah. I, I'm not sure if they have like, uh, like teams drafting them or not. I'm sure that they have to. They're probably not just like out on their own. Um, but... Even even if you had like fuel sources and and water and shit like that, I, I think it would be pretty tough. What's the next one? So the last one I wrote down is: Would you rather survive six months on a deserted island with plentiful resources, or survive two weeks with a partner in some sort of uh, barren land, i.e., the Sahara Desert or the Arctic, something very extreme? Hmm. This is the hardest one for me because my get it over with gritty side wants to go two weeks with a partner in Baron, especially if we can have sex. Sure. I is it a girl partner? You. you can be whoever you want, man. All right. Well, <laughs> I got to tell you, though, I don't I don't think if you're <laughs> that's in a big, Serengeti, it's a pretty big consideration. looking to get it in. I mean, I get it in, in, in the Arctic <laughs> as an alternative, though. I, I think I would get a lot of benefit out of solitude, especially if I could have like all of the, if, if I could have the exact environment that I wanted, like in Lost where that guy's like in the bunker with like, you know, like well, it's all not the exact, technology like you're just wants. getting dropped off on a desert island, but all of the, the resources are there for you to take advantage of. So it'd be comfortable. If you're, if you're good at surviving. Yeah. But in, you know, you basically... You're basically being thrust into a life or death situation in both scenarios. Yeah. I think I would go with the six month solitude because it's not that I think it would be less painful. I, I, I think there's probably more growth to be found in spending six months alone than I mean, the other one's interesting too, because it's a super gritty scenario with somebody who you're probably going to be bonded with forever after that, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and you probably learn a lot about going through a life or death type yeah, so Pain like threshold. to me, this one's this one's really difficult. Not in what choice seems more attractive. What's your value anchor here? Are you looking for the one that you're gonna grow the most from, or the one that is the most comfortable well, to enjoy? Well, I I actually don't see, uh, I don't see. Basically, I see a, a larger downside to both scenarios than upside. I think six months of solitude is way more than we're conceptualizing. It's a long time. Like, yeah, you could I, go crazy. I think it's I think it's like very debilitating, probably. Like castaway type shit almost. Yeah, but. I also think like extreme conditions, uh, whether you're with someone or not, where you are just under the cortisol drip for the entire two week time. Do you know that you're safe or could you actually die? You like, could actually die in both. Okay, like you're so just, you being, can't phone in, you can't phone in and no, but, but okay. So then I, 
I mean, if you uh, okay, so like if you could quit, uh, it really doesn't serve much purpose. How are you gonna die in the first one though? If you have all your resources, you're just not a good survivalist. Well, right? I'm like not. you're still gonna have to hunt. <laughs> I'm really. Gonna... I probably couldn't build a fire if I needed. Yeah, to. that's what I mean. It's like you'll. When I say you have all the resources, it's like you'll have a flint. You'll have coconuts to to draw from. You'll have water source. You'll have uh, animals to hunt. You have the ability to make tools, shelter, etc. But you have to do all these things. See, that's way different than I thought. What you were giving me, I thought you were giving. You me have like... to do the same thing in the extreme scenario, though, too. I thought I was gonna be like glamping in scenario no. one. No. So what do you think is the I mean, I think it's, uh, personally, I think like you have to choose the six months because the likelihood of death is so much lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but. Insanity goes Insanity, up, I think, goes up. But I also do think that there's like. Can uh, we text? Nah. No internet. <laughs> you got nothing, man. You could write a book. I do think that there's a level of, like, I, I think that there's a layer between insanity and um, a good experience. And it's, it's most likely that you leave a changed person who's a little bit depressed. Mm. But I think both scenarios, if you survive them, there's this certain layer that's added to you now. For sure. And I think like a guy like Goggins is a good example of the extreme scenario where it's like two weeks in just hell. And like when you begin to survive those over and over and over again, you exude some level of self-confidence that like is unmatched. Yeah, like I've been through the worst and I can get through it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think like all this kind of ties back to if we're looking at how to shape a poker career and things like that, it's like, um, you know, when you're talking about investment strategies, there's a reason why certain people were able to take on risks, recognize what the worst case scenario is and push past it. Yeah. Okay. So I almost want to give you one cause you don't do any drugs. So, and when I think about these types of things, You'd some of high? the, well, in, in terms of going through such a, uh, a rigorous test. Yeah the things that I've derived some of the most confidence from, I think are really, really bad trips, like really, really bad drug experiences. There's this quote, um, I forget where it comes from, but it's basically the, the worst trips are the best trips because they're the ones that you get the most value out of at the sure. end of the day. So let me think of a good one. You've never even smoked weed. No. So you don't really have any reference for what drug would be worse, but I, let's do it like this. What would you rather endure? The worst hallucination that you could ever experience on a drug. So it's totally not real. Right. right. Ooh, this is going to be good. 30 minutes of the worst, scariest hallucination you could even conceptualize as somebody who's never done drugs. Sure. Or 30 minutes of the worst type of physical torture you can imagine sober. And, mean, and I'm going to, because it's hard, it's hard to even ask you because you don't, have you ever had a panic attack or anything? Have you ever had anything that's caused you to feel like you're completely losing control? No, but I mean, this does bring up my stance on drugs and like why I don't do them. Like I do think that there's a lot of benefit to um, particularly like, uh, psilocybin and um, ayahuasca and, and basically these things that are, uh, are low-grade low hallucinogens. I think that for uh, you know, people who have trauma or for people who are um, not in a place where they're kind of like fully, I guess, in touch with themselves or whatever the case may be, where they want to open up that portion, I think these things serve as 
tremendous tools, uh, particularly people with uh, PTSD. But for me, I feel like I've had natural ways of pushing through those blockades. And I could just be saying that out of arrogance. Maybe I don't know what I don't know. But I feel like I have a pretty healthy mind and uh, self-reflective outlook of things. So my greatest fear is a deterioration of mind. Mm. And like my biggest reason for like wanting nothing to do with any sort of drug as a whole is because I don't want to alter my state of mind in any capacity. Right. So the hallucination is like really horrifying to me. But the fact that it's short and fleeting and assumedly won't have any irreparable damage on the other I end. I didn't say that. Right, that's fair. Well, even so if I told you it didn't, right. you wouldn't know that while it's happening. I understand that. Or you that. at least wouldn't trust it. Because when it's going on, yeah. it feels very, it feels as real. I think the actual answer to this question is there's no difference. Yeah, I would almost choose anything over the hallucination. But 30 minutes of physical torture is a long <laughs> fucking time, man. It is. I mean, that is like a long time. And when you go down the path of like what you could conceptualize as the worst physical torture, I'm like, my mind's running, you know, it's like, I put myself in situations like the guy who cut off his fucking arm after I mean, rock climbing. I've been in some of the, I can't say I've been in the worst spots with drugs, but I have been in some very bad situations yeah. with drugs and I was sure the world was ending yeah. like in some of these. So it's hard to like see how it could be worse than that. Like when it feels like the sky is literally falling. Well, I, it's, it's the, it's the damage thereafter. Right. So if like your worst physical torture is that's really you lose the, a hand, but that's really the paradox of it is that like part of me feels like I've been strengthened by some of these experiences. Yeah. And then part of me feels like if there's leftover, there may be leftover trauma from even having to go through that. So that's sure. a double edged sword of drugs is like, you pay the price on the traumatic on, on the side of being potentially traumatized by going through something that is that gritty. Right. And I wonder if Goggins would say something like that too. Like I know that he's talked about how there was physical tolls taken on his body from doing some of those races and stuff like that. But yeah. I wonder, cause I look at someone like him and like people think that like people would say like, Oh, you, you know, you guys are intense. But when I look at Goggins, like he is one who's been literally hardened by life. Like, yeah, I don't necessarily think he's the most balanced dude. I think he's got a lot of strong philosophies, but I almost feel like he's someone who like is potentially stuck attacking life a little bit too hard. And oh, I get, I I get probably, why he's like that. I think he would probably admit that, but I also think that like the message he's casting is for the lower third. And not, it's, not and for it's the super media. awesome for most yeah. people because, well, almost all people I think could benefit from having more of his grit. Right. I just wonder if he would admit that he's been a little bit traumatized by the experiences that he's been through in the sense that now he has this value anchor that like, I mean, if he's not pushing himself to the absolute fullest, yeah. like I know I have a little bit of that in me and I can't yeah. even imagine how much he has it in. And his I Rogan almost, podcast talks about this a little bit. Like the first time he ran an ultra was the first time he ever ran a hundred miles. Like he did no prep for it whatsoever. And he broke all the bones in his feet. Yeah. I remember him saying that he was like reckless and yeah, and he was just like crazy about it. He said like, he just wouldn't run. He just, it wasn't even that he physically couldn't like he was healed up and he like just refused to run. Right. For like an extended period thereafter. Um, and, you know, obviously that's a byproduct of like, I chose to go to the extreme, fuck myself up. And like, I just have no need to do that. I don't need to prove it to myself again. Yeah. And I think that that ultimately what, what it boils down to is we're, we're just all, we're always talking about uh, playing with ceilings and trying to do our damnedest 
to, to fly too close to the sun without getting burned and then recalibrate and figure out like if we can push the limits further uh, and things along those lines. It's, it's funny how the whole conversation really about volatility and bankroll management is a microcosm of this right. concept right. of how aggressively you want to play with the ceiling. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it comes full circle to what we've spoken about in the past. It's how much pain are you willing to endure in the short run to ensure that you won't endure pain in the long run. Or that you'll be able to at least manage pain better right. in the long run, which I guess is the same thing. Right. Well, I think that's that's a byproduct of exploring ceilings, right? Once you figure out where your where the parameters lie, where your where your um, uh, largest amount of output is, then you can regress to a level of eighty percent of that, the eighty twenty rule. You know, where it's like if I give eighty percent effort, I'm still outperforming almost everybody, right, but right. I'm enduring almost no pain, and probably being less reckless in the process too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting, those, those thought problems are, I guess, not, they're not comfortable to think about, but like going back to the green button thing, which I mentioned on the earlier uh, vlogcast, I'm pretty clear that most people are, the, the weakness of most people, including myself, I would say, is that to various degrees, we are not front loading enough suffering because we think that we're going to be able to put it off indefinitely. Yeah. I think that's the rationalization. Yep. So the green button thing is cool because it's like, you know, would you press the green button if it meant that you could have 10 seconds of upfront torture to be free ever after? Yeah. As opposed to years of just like slow burning futility. Yeah. Um, well, also the, uh, the idea of taking on the, the long term excruciating, excruciating pain is that the pain itself is manageable. We have we have uh, hormones in our body that allow us to endure. It's the anticipation of the pain that really fucks us and distorts the actual pain when it comes. Right. Too. Right. So when you say you're about to endure 10 seconds of pain, your body just goes into a, a frenzy, which makes every moment of that pain actually worse. It intensifies everything. Yeah. yeah it that's basically a creates point. a memory where like you never want to endure that again. And I think this is a lot what happens too when we lose the first three buy-ins in a session yep. is it starts to make it seem like now it's so such an insurmountable feat that we're going to book a winning session. Right. And this is a, one of the reasons why when a guy tells me he really doesn't do well when he loses two, three buy-ins, the correct strategy for someone like that is to lower volatility at the beginning of a session. Agreed. Totally agree. Uh, there's really cool stuff you can do to play with. Once yeah. you figure out what type of person or personality inclination you are, I think there's a lot of really cool sort of hacks or tactics that you can apply to um, the way that you approach a session and at different stages of the session and the yeah. macro different stages of the career to, to, to attempt to not counter your imbalance, but just like account for it right. in a healthy yeah, way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's very clear anybody who's paying attention will recognize that uh, poker strategy is nuanced to the point where it's not just one singular approach where you just have an idea of how to play certain hands in certain formations against certain player types, et cetera. It's also like strategizing towards your strengths, towards your opponent's Oh, that's, that's so, I don't think we talked about that nearly enough, but I think it should be one of the things that we keep doubling back on is if you could identify where your strengths and weaknesses actually are as a player, you can concoct a strategy, like a formula for yourself that really allows you to play into the highest win rate sections of your game. Right. And what should be very clear is the reason this occurs is due to the lack of information available. Nobody knows what's going on in your mind whenever you are choosing certain actions, decisions at the table, frequencies, mixes anything along those lines so if you're utilizing uh outside sources that are impactful like i'm going to reduce volatility early in sessions because i know i'm a worse player when i'm stuck mm. this is 
benign to your opponents. They it's have very no hard concept. to track. Yeah, like, it'd, it'd be like, like there's a while back when people were like, oh, I'm going to randomize today by only three betting red cards yeah. instead. And like, yeah, yeah that's, yeah. it's benign unless somebody is able to track it, yeah. which in, usually you can't track this type of stuff right, that we're right. talking about right. if you're switching it up. And uh, so I think it's super helpful to be able to create. Well, you're doubling down is the, is the important thing. Cause now you're doubling down on things that you're confident in. We just choose red cards. It's like, yeah, you're going to be random. And, for, for a day. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty <laughs> unlikely that people were going to recognize. But what are you really doubling down on other than the randomness? Like, how is that necessarily giving you a, if a, it, an increased If it edge? brought you confidence that you were actually going to be well-balanced. Sure, sure. In that sense. Yeah. But we should talk more about this in the future. Just ways to play. Because I'm so much more interested in this stage in actually starting to map the different dimensions of strategy development yep. that are still out there. And yep. you can get really creative with this stuff in ways that it gives you edge back where someone who's better at Sims, like someone who's just way better straight up at doing Sim work yep. is going to have that edge over you. Right. They're going to be able to play more balance than you have push comes to shove. But there are ways to try to channel the match in a, into a territory where you still have edge and I think that's sort of the guerrilla tactics of, 100%. of poker. Uh, I, I mean, ultimately, like, that's a lot of what we're, we're professing, right? It's the idea that um, there are going to be better tacticians out there and there are going to be more researched analysts. But none of that really matters if their incentives don't align with balance. And most environments, as is, don't necessarily incentivize strictly balanced play. Yeah, I feel like the ability, like this is what McGregor was trying to do when he fought uh, Mayweather, and we were talking about it back in the day, and, and I overestimated how good of a fight that was going to be. I thought Mayweather was going to have a better shot, but people who can successfully take theoretical robots out of their element, like his whole strategy in that fight was to try to, to basically juke Mayweather into overextending himself. Right. And it didn't work right. because Mayweather was just not going to budge from right. his mindset, which yeah. was really... It taught me a lot to watch that. I was really happy I didn't end up betting that fight because I was telling you guys I was like, oh, I feel like I feel like Mayweather's a great or McGregor is a great bet in this yeah, fight yeah. with the odds that he was getting. Um, but I feel like moving forward, we'll continue to see the battle between people who are really strong theoretical, trying to hold frame, and sort of not be induced by the tactics that people who are more exploitative and um, I don't even want to say like, tactical. I guess is a word for it. But I feel like there's going to be this constant war between how well theoretical players can hold their frame in the face of exploitative players who are trying to take them out of their comfort right. zone. Yeah. And I, I really like that dynamic. I think it's fun to watch because the theoretical guy should win that if he's able to hold frame. But yeah. there's a mindset dimension. Well, there's a mindset dimension there. and there's a time dimension at play. Whether you're talking about high-level tournaments where there's a ticking clock and like at some point you're going to be forced to accumulate the chips, mm. or you're talking about a cash game scenario where it's like, yeah, you're going to get to play together, but like how often and yeah. you know how many hours are you going to log versus one another? And I think then in that sense that the exploitative guy will have a clear edge because the the theoretical guy will never have enough volume to basically catch up or press out. And they may not even be edges realized versus one another. It might just be against the field if the field is certainly punting money in certain arenas that the theoretical player is going to uh kind of like accumulate but very slowly right like he'll he'll just naturally win 
his share of that EV, but it's his fair share over some extended period of time. Well, the exploitative player might just like skin the sheep. Yeah. Well, the exploitative player will beat the fish. Yeah, way faster. That's, that, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I think that just the on the last point that I would make about it is that the theoretical player, I think, is if we were going to construct a perfect player, he'd clearly be a robot mm. who's playing perfectly. Right. That would be inexploitable. Sure. And what I think the th most theoretical in theoretically inclined players are making the mistake of is not accurately assessing how susceptible they are to mindset distortion right it's believing that they're capable of interchanging with that robot. like talk to any like every really hard scientist player that i observe any player who's really theoretically oriented when they go on that first 20 30 40 buy-in downswing they will report back saying that like it's the most it, it is impossible to prepare for what happens to your mind when you go through that. Right. And I think the arrogance of the the theory oriented player, innocently so, is to not fully account for how severe that distortion actually is. Yeah. So it's almost like we need other tools in our arsenal to be able to, to handle that when it happens. And I think that's why working on mindset is kind of important. And I, I think we have them in life if you're healthy and balanced, right? It's like, it's the same thing. It, it's always the, uh, I know it happens, but not to me kind of thing. Like, and, and this is honestly why I think when I say you have a sober advantage, it's like when I think about how volatile so many players' mindsets are over the course of the month when they're falling off of a routine, like, it's it's rare to see someone playing the same caliber 30 days in a row. Yeah. And yeah. I think someone like you who is more stable like in your schedule or your routine or just your, the chemicals that you put into your body has a better chance of being able to be um, almost robotic, the positive side of robotic, which is just consistent in your application. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think that's... Uh this thing needs to come to a close. So appreciate you here for the last three weeks. Looking forward to uh, digging our heels into this free project that we're launching. Definitely going to have you back. Um, I know Chin's going to be traveling a little bit more in the upcoming months. So our Dominican friend is back next week. Let's he go, Chin. He'll be handling the intros. He'll be providing a little flavor, a little character that you and I don't seem to possess. We really need him. Yeah. We need a third. That's true. All right, all jokes aside, I hope you all have enjoyed Nick Howard on the Solve for Why vlogcast. As you can see, I'm packed up, ready to go to Vegas, ready to film another vlog. I don't have a vlog stick, so keeping this camera stable is working my shoulders as much as shit. They're flexed, fully flexed right now. You can see them, you can see them. If you can't, go fuck yourself. You hurt. I'm on my way back. I'm gonna film one. I'm gonna film a vlogcast. I'm gonna bring the spice back. Holy shit. Yeah.